Hi, my name is Jacob Peterson, guitarist with Steve Miliband. Through the past 10 years, you're listening to Talkin' Blues. It's been 10 years? 10 years. Wow. Yeah. I just, I remember having a conversation at the very beginning of this whole thing. That's correct. That was 10 years ago. My God. I know. Our time flies. Like, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah. you, you got to remember to enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I noticed on, on Facebook that you're, you're trying to start a new band. Yeah, that's correct. Um, how's that going? Uh, it's, it's difficult. You know, I got to admit now that I am a middle-aged man. You know, 45 years old. I'm going to be here in August. And... Uh, I mean, it, it's a weird age because I'm at the spot now where I'm young enough to join a younger band, but I'm old enough also to be in what you call the legacy act, right? Like the Steve Miller yeah. band or that kind of age, right? Uh, so I'm kind of right in the in-between phase, but that also means that a lot of my friends and a lot of the local community, usually when you reach that age, people are getting a little jaded. Uh, I don't mean it in a negative way. Uh, but it's kind of like, I mean, number one, there's practical reasons. One is people that are playing five nights a week to make a living and they're barely making a living. They may not want to rehearse. They may not want to take a weekend to play, which is understandable because they're already working their ass off. So they're just trying to take what you already know and go out and do the work and go home. So I get it. Uh, second of all, some have families, wives, whatever. Uh, maybe some people have health conditions. There's a lot of reasons once you get up in your 40s when everything kind of starts to fall apart, right? Uh, that that people really just, yeah, just give, send me the songs. I'll show up and do the gig and I'll just fall back on my musicianship. And uh, that's what most people they do, especially if, if you know how to play. Uh, so why practice? Why rehearse? I got to be honest with you. I don't know anybody who knows, I mean, who likes or enjoys practicing. And if, if I know some who will do it, expecting some kind of pay. Uh, and that can be, you know, usually like just common courtesies, pay everybody like 25 bucks and be sure there's breakfast tacos and coffee or, right. or lunch or something. You know, you can get f- five guys in a room and hopefully there's a gig or two. But I always say, if I could call anybody right now and say, hey, I got a gig next week. It pays 35 bucks plus tips. Uh, most people, you would say, okay, send me the music, I'll do it. You know, uh, but if there's a rehearsal involved, uh, instantly the brakes come down, which I understand because it's going to take longer than the gig and it's a drag, you know. Uh, if it pays 25 bucks, usually you can get people to do it. So so it's kind of that thing, but where younger people that live five guys in a house or they don't have kids, they don't have health conditions, they, they can live on junk food and be fine. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Those those guys just want to play, and they haven't yet figured out how ruthless the music the music scene is, right? So they're just happy to play. So so what's for me? What I'm tr- I still have the same fire to play as when I was 16 and I first picked up the guitar. I have that's nothing has changed. I have the exact same spark, the same fire, and I have more to say. I think uh, so. I I want to play. But I also have to acknowledge my privilege that I've been touring with a national act that have allowed me to, yes, I work my ass off for six months every year, 
but then I have six months off. So I have a lot of time, which is a privilege. So in that way, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I complain, which I do, uh, that people don't want to play, people don't want to rehearse. I can see from where these sit, why? Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. But when you decided, I presume recently that you decided you wanted to get together yeah. a band of some sort, what, what was what was in your mind? Like, what what do you envision this band well, to be? Just something that you get together weekly and jam or? Well, both, right? I mean, the, the first thing is, hey, there ain't going to be any gigs. Right. But I, so I want, if I can get five guys in a room and play, Number one, we all get a musical outlet that we very much need. Number two, we keep our chops up. And number three, uh, it's like a stress reliever. It's very good to get out and kind of, I mean, it's it meditating and, and very relaxing to play music, you know. Uh, so so it, it serves three purposes in, in a way there. And musically? Uh, where, what? Mu musically, well, I'd like to do something a little bit harder because I've always kind of been known for I mean, you look at me, you know, I don't have tattoos and I'm not ripped and I don't look like a burly guy, right? Right. You know, but I play rougher or more raw than a lot of people, uh, you know. Um, so it, it's it's toughness is about a person's mental capability, not about how many tattoos one have got or if you got a full beard or not. That's kind of like the old joke, right? I mean, look at Beatles. You were raw, you were raw as hell. Mm-hmm. They were getting in fights and stuff, and he came from a, well, like Liverpool, really, really rough neighborhood, and he looked like a bunch of pretty young, young pretty boys. But you know what I mean? So it's it's, it, that that's a misconception in life. You know, I think maybe the Hollywood industry, that if you don't look like a biker, you, you're not a rough guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 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 I have this desire here to, to go out and actually uh, play some music with a little bit of hair on it. Uh, a little bit edgy, but I also think maybe it's because of Corona. Uh, I'm, you know, it's becomes you kind of. I'm like, I'm, I'm fucking tired of it. I'm fed up. I, I'm, I mean, if I go there, I could even say I'm pissed. Right. You know, I mean, not along did I lose. I, I lost a lot of money. I mean, you know, as a musician, when you're touring on my level, the summer that's your farm, that's your harvest, that's eighty percent of my income. That's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and my, I didn't just lose my job. I lost my career. Had I worked at Guitar Center, Best Buy, Home Depot, and I'm not disrespecting anybody who works there. Any loss is a loss, and it deserves respect. But I can find another sales job. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? It's a lot easier to go and fill up. And I, I mean, come on. You know, it, it's like you can find another one-bedroom apartment. It's a little bit, you know, more difficult for me to find something to replace what I had. Especially when the career is in, you know, the whole career is gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you, do you think about it? Do you not think about it? How do you process uh, this? Uh, it's interesting. There's so many. It, it's funny because I'm actually, part of me, I, I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. It, it part of my, one of my upsides, I guess, I want, want, you know, that that's who, how I work is that I'm extreme, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, I have OCD, and and when I find something I like, I learn everything about it. The downside is the things I don't care about much, I don't know anything about, you know, but, <laughs> right. you know, I take all my energy. So, 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 um, so the thing is, uh, I guess, 
what's happened now is that I can't control this at all. I mean, it's just kind of like being in a car that just stops on the freeway. You can't yell at that car and get it back to work. And there's nothing you can do. Right. But if you, at least you can call somebody and get a ride or an Uber or something, or you can get a, a you know, you can call AAA and get them to tow your, tow your car. But all cars are stopped on the freeway. There is no towing company. There's no Uber. We all in this shit. So it's kind of this weird, the world just stopped. So what is it going to help me to freak out about it? I mean, there's just nothing I can do. And like I, we talked about earlier before we started the interview, the best defense against COVID-19 is your health. Mm -hmm. And that includes mental health. If your mental health isn't there, your physical health will not be there. So for me, uh, and my wife, you know, she's a nutritionist, functional medicine, so she's very into all that meditation and all that stuff. But we just kind of decided to focus on our relationship, uh, you know, on, you know, that's the only thing we could control is how do we feel and how do we feel together mm -hmm. inside these four walls of our home. And of course, our number one priority has been to keep this home. That's like the main goal, right? If we can get out of this one and keep our home, uh, that's the goal. Uh, so we've kind of just let everything slide and, and I'm watching less and less news to a point where I'm barely watching any news because every day things change. There's so much going on. And in America, as most people know, politically, you know, the last four years have been, I mean, people are just hating each other. And I can say this without being political. I'm, I'm, I'm respecting both groups. I'm just saying America is not getting along. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's so vital that it's kind of like, it's a classic two-party system. You know, you're either for or you're against me. So people aren't friending each other. They're blocking each other. They're getting in fights. It's getting really, really ugly in America. And this whole COVID has kind of fueled that. It hasn't brought a, it brought some people together, but it has brought other people further apart. So, so back to my own personal situation, uh, I'm just, I've just let go. And that is a thing that I have suffered from my entire life that what had made, helped make me a great guitar player has also made me too intense, uh, at times too political, or at times I've just had a hard time of letting things happen, letting go, right. you know, and knowing when to control and when not to control. When do you let shit slide and when do you use OCD? When do you use your ability to focus and just learn everything about something? Because it was hard for me to just put it in place of when is it a good thing to do? It was kind of ruling my life, if, if, if that makes oh, sense. That makes total sense. I mean, things are just crazy. It's I watched the news the other day. Yeah. And it was just like unbelievable to me what I was watching minute after minute. Like it was like insanity. Yeah. And, and it's never positive. It's never positive. No. It's never. It's always the world is going to collapse because of this. The world is going to hell because of this. And, and, and instead of people that with different opinions, it's never, you know, we're experiencing conflicting opinions or the science here tells us, but World Health Organization is telling right now, the USA and Europe are looking at this thing slightly different. It's not about that. It's, it's World Health Organization. We don't know anything. Right. They're going crazy. You're not listening to science or it's always about somebody who's an idiot, a retard or a Nazi or a racist or I mean, there's never that the, the, the news simply is not interested in listening to other voices or 
or trying to figure out why some people de- de- think differently than others, or you're not trying to balance it no more. Right. It seems like they're just feeding to people's panic. And for me, I've just decided that that's not healthy for me or my wife, and it's not healthy for my relationship, and it's not healthy for, for, for my future. So I've kind of just stepped back. I, I, I try and, and read the news online. It tends to be a lot more laid back. There's, there's stuff you can find there if you know where to look, uh, where, where you can get a better idea. And I try and get I, – I call up my family in Europe. Denmark, I talk to them and kind of check their pulse. Uh, you know, I talk to, to family in other parts of the states and hear about what's going on there. And that gives me a lot of a better idea about what's happening with the country so, than CNN. Right. So musically, what are you doing? I know you're always fiddling around with your effect boxes and whatever. But, oh, yeah, yeah. But playing-wise, are you, are you writing? You're playing-wise. Well, no, actually, I put the guitar down. I did the exact opposite of everybody. I didn't play for probably a month and a half. Wow. Yeah, not at all. I just put it away. Uh, and I'm not sure. Maybe I was so upset uh, and hurt about what everything was going to be that I just needed to step away from it. You know, I'm playing my own devil's advocate here because most people you talk to would probably explode about how productive they've been or, <laughs> or happiness is a choice. Oh, this is great because now I can sit down three hours a day and practice scales on a metronome. But of course, I don't do that until I do, you know, 100 push-ups. You know, that's fine. <laughs> that's great. If, if people want to do that and, sh- and play it on Instagram and show how great they are and how much they've done, how many books they've read and how productive and how they've used this to become, that's fine. I'm not that person. I'm just not, you know. I, but you're thinking about starting a band. Yeah. So obviously there is something that says... I want to get back into Absolutely. it. But it's been, like I said, it's been a two and a half, three months process. Because like I said, I just totally let go. The biggest thing I focused on has been cooking. Every night, I, I'm cooking now five nights out of the week. My wife is the one doing most of the work. And I'm cooking. So I'm kind of like becoming the home person now, right? Making sure my wife is taken care of the best I can while I'm at home. I'm currently on unemployment, uh, you know. But yeah, the band, so yeah, I didn't really touch my guitar for about a month and a half. I just kind of said, fuck it. You know, I just uh, kind of left it to my own thoughts. Uh, I, I like that space. Right. And I was, it was so bad, actually. My calluses on my fingers started disappearing. And I actually went a little nervous. I was like, wow, I can't remember when my, the tips of my fingers have been this soft. You know, and then I, I, I panicked a little bit. Yeah, how long will it take you to get back and to get those calluses back? Oh, it took me two days. Oh, that was it. Yeah, you just you know, I mean, you know, you just sit down, you play a couple hours, then then it it comes back quickly. It really does. It's, I'm not I'm not too nervous. You know, I heard an interview with Larry Carlton the other day, and he said something about. Now I don't want to quote him because you know uh, I don't want to upset anybody. Larry Carlton fans. I I was kind of just skimming through it on YouTube, but he said something along the lines that he wasn't. Back in the day, he he played all the time, mostly also just because in the 70s and 80s, there was a certain group of session cats. They were doing pretty much 80% of all recordings. So, you you, you know, a lot of times you don't really practice because you're always working. Yeah, yeah. Which has changed. But as you got older, I think he was talking about taking a break, like going on vacation, seeing the world being gone two or three months and not playing at all. And when he came home, I think what he said was one of the first things was, he was, wow, I, I feel rusty, right? He could feel that he hadn't put in playing. 
but the upside was that he he felt he approached the guitar differently. He he heard differently, because sometimes non-musical things can have an effect on your musical things, uh, and you can miss that. People that are like I call music nerds, that everything they're doing is music, music, music all the time. She sometimes miss. At the end of the day, when you're playing an instrument, it's a form of communication. So if you're losing track on the average person or what's going on in life in general, you potentially could have a language barrier when you're trying to to make your music relate to other people, like for example, an audience. So, 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 does does do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes yeah, yeah. putting the guitar away gives you a chance to reconnect with the real world. Right. And that's what I've been doing. So lately now, yes, I've been wanting to start a band, but I'm just letting it happen. Uh, and like, like I said, because of my kind of need to control everything, I have done the exact opposite. To be honest with you, I don't care what happens to this band. I don't know the drummer. I don't know the bass player. I don't know the singer. I don't know the other guitar player. I've reached out to acquaintances instead of friends. Uh, I've reached out to younger people. I want to find somebody in, in, in his late 20s, early 30s. You know, somebody be before people get too burned, before you, people get too kids, before life kind of sweeps you away. I want to find some people that, that, that potentially can whoop my ass. Some, some, some people who loves playing. And, 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 you know, uh, I mean, like I said, when I was 17, 18 and just started out, I didn't give a shit about the audience. I didn't even think about, it. I didn't even know if I was good enough to have to ever get a gig, you know? Well, you started late. I did. Right? Like you said, 16, 17. How did that start happen? What made you pick up the guitar? Well, I, like I said, I, I, it, it, you know, we've talked about these things a little bit before. I, I grew up in a, in a theater family, long story short. My parents divorced when I was one. My mom was 20. My father was 30. They both in the theater. My father is a sound engineer. He was. And he learned it in the military with, back when it was tubes and stuff. Real old school radio technology from the 50s, right? right. And he's been in theater. He recently retired uh, three years ago. But he was in the theater probably 50, 30, 40, 45, maybe 50 years. It's like crazy amount of time. Wow. Um, so, of course... I was lucky. We we maintained a good relationship. Uh, my mom works worked at the theater. She actually still does, and and she has that job where you you kind of you 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 sit in like this box that's kind of hidden, and if a if an actor forgets the words, she will whisper the words. Right. So she kind of follows the entire play. <laughs> and she found uh, a new man within a couple of years, and he's been my stepdad. I mean, since I was like five, right, or four or five, I think. And uh, and everybody gets along. That's never been an issue there. Mm -hmm. But he's a stage actor. So growing up in the theater, I've always been around music and arts. But I've never had a desire to play music. Ever, ever, ever. Not at all. Uh, but I was an extra at the theater uh, at a Christmas show when I was 16. And there was a classical trained guitar player who was there, I shared a wardrobe with, a little small room. And uh, about a month into it, ah, maybe a week, probably a week, he would always be sitting there, you know, when we're sitting in costume, waiting for the cue from the speaker to walk out and do our stuff on stage. Right. And he would he would sit with a little guitar and play. There was a guitar in the corner and he would play. And one day I just said, hey, 
can I try that guitar? I just want to hold it. And I sat down with it. And he showed me like one chord. I strummed it. Boom. It was over. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. I mean, it was, I can't explain what it was. It was just right there. And, and, and then I, I spent all my money on, I got a guitar and a wah pedal and a distortion pedal and an amplifier. And then he did, when the show was over, I got six lessons from him, like half hour lessons. And then he moved back to Sweden. And then I was pretty much on my own from then. And that was, when was that? Like 80, 89 maybe or something. I was, yeah, I was almost 17 years old. So it was a little late. Did you ever think about going into the theater? Oh, absolutely. So that was absolutely that was a possibility. Well, yeah, because like I, you know, I've set up always kind of known, and I've always been this way. It's a good thing and a bad thing. The upside is also the downside. But I know what I like. I know what I want, and I know who I am, and I know it right now. It takes me five minutes to figure out most things, where it can take other people two days or a week or a year. I'm just really good at at knowing how I feel about something. Um, so uh, I make the decision. I go for it. Uh, and pretty much in school, I just never cared, you know, and I, I'm not the person who gets, you know, uh, horror stories about, you know, if you don't get good grades, we're going to do this or punishment. This is going to happen to you. Or I've never really cared about the scare tactics, like the fear, right, which is still the old way right. parents teach their children or, or in a school. If you don't do this, I mean, it's I don't know. I've just never really. And maybe part of that is is maybe me. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's part. Maybe I'm naive to some point there, or or, or maybe I'm reckless. I don't really know. But I've just only done what I what I liked doing, and that's just how it's been. And and that's how that's always have been. And I and I think so. In other words, I didn't want an education. I didn't want to do anything. I I as soon as I could quit school, which was after tenth grade, I did. You know, and I didn't go to the music conservatory because I hated school. Why would I go back to school? The very thing I hated about, I mean, why would I take the very thing I love about music and go to school? But had, I hate had you decided at this point or soon after that, picking up that guitar, did you think this is what I'm going to do? Oh, no doubt about it right away. It wasn't a hobby for me. I said, I want to do this. This is what I want to do. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I knew it right away. Uh, you know, of course, in the back of my mind, I always thought about I could become an actor, too, because I'm really good with people. I, you know, and uh, I just I'm comfortable in that environment. Uh, being on stage doesn't scare me. It, it's 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 a very special feeling. I, I love the theater. I love that there's so many different people and especially the theater I grew up on, man. I mean, it was just all kinds of people. And it was an interesting way to grow up. I think I got a lot of, uh, I think I got a pretty open-minded side on life growing up that way. So, so in many ways that had been good, but the downside of that was also that I realized things didn't have to be one way. Meaning had I grown up in a working class family, potentially I wouldn't, I would never have played music because maybe I would just have gotten a job or something or something to quote unquote fall back on. Right. Because you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, so, so, so yeah, I knew right away that I want to be doing this. Of course, it became clearer when I started better grasping what that included. You know, my parents had, we had the sit down talk. 
you know, uh, all that stuff. You know, I remember my father sitting me down and saying, listen, your mother and I, we support you. We love you. You know that. Let, let there be no mistake, no doubt. We are behind you 100%. But I need to tell you no, from knowing, because I, that's what I do. I, I've gone down this road, being an actor. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you not to do it because I'm doing it. I can't tell you not to do these and these things because I did them. Uh, but you're picking what is potentially the hardest career path of any. And I just can't have you come to us in two years or three years or 10 years and go, my life is ruined. Why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you warn me? What did that you know? talk mean to you? Well, at the time, it didn't. I mean, I appreciated it. I didn't understand it because I'm not a parent. Uh, and I was young, so I didn't really get it. When you tell a young person that he shouldn't eat McDonald's because it's bad for him, when you're young, you can eat McDonald's every day and be perfectly healthy and have muscles. You just use it out. It's no problem. Right. You know what I mean? So, so I, at that time, I appreciated it. It was nice to hear that he had my back. That was an early privilege, I think, much more than the majority don't get that privilege. I think most parents say, we'll allow you to play music if you get good grades in school, or there'll be some kind of, if you get a job, we'll allow you, you know, then we'll support you. And I mean, there, there's conditions. Right. And I can understand those conditions, but a Danish philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard, I think, uh, he said, if you got something to fall back on, you will. And, and I read that as one of the few things I read in my life, but I read that and I took it to heart. And at the time, it was all I needed to just say, yeah, fuck this. I'm going to just go for it. You know, so, I mean, it's it's one thing holding the guitar and thinking I want to do this. But, you know, obviously you have to get good at it. <laughs> yeah. How how was how was that process of learning the guitar and, and getting into becoming a guitar player? Well, um, at first it was easy, right? Everybody starts with blues because it's a very you don't have you can do a lot with a, with a little. You know, it wasn't very from a technical point of view, if you're playing jazz or classical, something like that, you have to learn quite an elaborate landscape of music. So, right. So you have to practice, you have to, it, it, it takes a different form of discipline until you get rolling to a point where you can just play and that's enough. You know, uh, rock and roll blues, it's, it's a different thing. And, uh, I don't know. I will. I don't think I'm lazy. I think I just because when when I enjoy stuff or if there's something I want to do, I work as hard as the next guy or harder, uh, you know. But I just don't have any motivation to do stuff if I do not love it. Even even I mean I just don't. It's 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 kind of like I would love to have a six pack. I'd love it. But I don't want to do the work. I'd love to be able to play like George Benson, but obviously not enough to sit down and practice scales for three hours every day. You know, uh, so I've just always done what I liked. And then I don't really care if there's stuff I'm not as good at, because I think the world is big enough for why, why do every musician have to be able to play the same stuff? Why, why can't I mean, we, chefs don't do that. You don't hear a world famous from chef from France go to go to uh, go to Japan and then have the best sushi he's ever had. But then he criticizes the sushi chef because he can't do French cooking. Or he doesn't know how to do a, a certain sauce or something. 
but but in the music business we do it all the time we always criticize people because of the lack of theoretical knowledge or or, or ability to play all styles of music or you know some people have that you got to be prepared for all music or the more you know the more you can play so how can it not elevate your musical ability and i always say chuck barry he had been a jazz guy he would never have created johnny b good if bb king he knew how to play jazz he would never have had his signature lick because he simply know too much right you know spinal tap do you have that you know <laughs> what where, where, where do you making a joke of it but the funny thing is there's some truth to it yeah for sure so you know? musically what did the blues mean to you at that point and well, growing up in denmark well, I've always liked all music, all music. I mean, I, I kind of hated mainstream pop because I was a rebel as a kid and still still am in a way where I was never, I never liked the idea of the cool kids or whatever was popular. I always found it shallow, virtue signaling, easy. You don't know who's sincere. A lot of people you just go with it because they want to be part of the crowd. And for me, originality and character is the biggest thing in my life. It's it's uh i'm a i think i'm a pretty hard judge when it comes to character uh because i myself am very loyal and i'm very trustworthy and i always keep my word and i'm honest with people even though sometimes if it hurts them and it can backfire but i believe you do people a favor when you're honest with them find a way to be nice right but i find that a lot of times people know and i'm not going to mention names because it's irrelevant but i know quite a few guys in this town just I'm just making an example mm -hmm. uh, that are known as the nice guys. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Oh, yeah, great. Oh, so and so, he's such a nice guy. But I know these people pers personally, and in my opinion, if you can't answer a text, you're not a nice guy. Right. If I'm texting you and you're ignoring me and not hearing from me for a week or a year, you're not a nice guy. If you say yes because you want to work with me, but you're doing it because you don't have the balls to say no, you're not a nice guy. I mean, it's just constantly I see examples of people doing stuff to try to please people. Right. And then it, 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 it negatively affects the product or sabotages the product. Because for some reason, people are so afraid of, I don't know, ruffling the feathers. I always say, be honest and be straight up. We can get a lot of stuff done a lot quicker. And it's not really a big deal. You know, somebody comes to me sometimes, you know, if they hear I'm in the Steve Miller band, and I can see they're kind of uncomfortable, and they may not like Steve Miliband. I always say, dude, I have no problem with that at all. Why? Why would I? Why would I have a problem? If somebody told me he didn't, he, you know what? I don't like like steak. I, I mean, I would that wouldn't upset me. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? And it's this whole yeah, yeah. Thing, why are you getting upset with that? We, there, there's enough for everybody. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I hope you'll respect what I do. Uh, the work I put in, or, or or maybe the fact that I've 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 been lucky and and been fairly successful over the past ten years, but we don't have to agree, in my opinion, or like the same stuff. So so go back to what you asked before. Uh, what made me get into blues? I started like in all music. I would listen to classical, flamenco. Uh, I would listen to uh, Sinatra. I would listen to Elvis Presley. I listened to Depeche Mode. Or Pet Shop Boys. I mean, I always liked hooks. You know, I listened to, to jazz and fusion. I listened to everything. And that's mainly because of my father, you know, uh, as a sound engineer at the theater, he would, oh man, he used all kind of music. I just like good music that makes you feel good with a good beat, good hook. 
So I've always been into music, but as I grew up and became a teenager, I was into metal, like heavy metal. And I think there was some rebellion in it that I liked. And we're talking from, I think it started around 13, 14. Right. And up to about 16. Everybody used to call me Heavy Jacob, <laughs> like in heavy metal. Oh, yeah. I would wear like jackets with patches and like death metal. And it would be all the, all the old school from back in the days before metal became hip. Like you wouldn't see Taylor Swift wear like a metal shirt. Like in, of course, she didn't exist, but a similar pop star. You didn't see some pop star girl wear like a metal shirt because you wanted to be hip. Right. Uh, it, it was back in the day where that music scared people, you know. Uh, and I don't know why I like that. I think there were some rebellion, and I think there were some my own need to maybe be accepted. You got to understand, Denmark is five million people, and most people like the same stuff. So when you're in school, the metal crowd, if there were one. We're talking maybe three, maybe five people, maybe 10. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. Th that was my, I didn't have any other, I mean, I wasn't unpopular. Everybody liked me because I was always funny and, you know, and, and, and open. I like to talk to people. So I wasn't the unpopular kid, not at all. But uh, I certainly did my own thing. And I think metal really allowed me to, it was really angry, and I enjoyed it. I, it's hard for me to explain why I liked it, but I think uh, I think I got over it, and I think blues music, rhythm and blues, kind of let me back into what I would call "quote unquote" normal music. But I heard the same. To me, it's kind of the same as punk music. You know, it, it's it's music that comes out of a rebellion. Right. And it's it's it has the same sincerity. Blues music for me. It allows people, it's not elitist. Jazz is kind of more an elitist music, even though jazz was all about rebellion. And it and it's punk in its own way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, listen to Bitches Brew, listen to the late 60s. I mean, even Bebop, when Charlie Parker came out, that was punk. To broke every rule. He didn't give a shit. Just, you know, he didn't care. At first, you know, nobody liked him. You know, and he didn't care. So that was as rebellious as, as Sex Pistols. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is blues music to me gave somebody who may, maybe wasn't, I've never been the first at anything. I was, my grades sucked. I wasn't great at sports. Uh, I just kind of sucked at most things, you know? Uh, and the blues was a way, I mean, I, I knew how to play. It took me four to five months to know how to play blues. Really? In four to five months, I, yeah, I played, yeah. You know, I remember when, when my guitar teacher, I was starting out with Johnny B. Good, and I had a blues lesson book by a famous jazz guitar player in, in Denmark. And I remember I asked after my sixth lesson, and it, summer vacation is coming, and the Swedish player, I mean, guitarist, he had to move back to Sweden. And I told him, hey, I would kind of like to join. A friend of mine has a band at school, like a school band. And when do you think I'll be able to start playing solos? And he said, man, at this pace, you'll be playing solos by summer. Of course, that was good news. I didn't think more about it because that's what happened. Wow. But you got to remember, I played six, seven hours a day, every day. I didn't party. I didn't go out weekends to drink with my friends. I, I didn't have girlfriends. I didn't. It was coming home, throw the backpack down. All my grades became worse. 
I went from being the best in German because we took German lessons in, in Denmark, the best of the class to the worst. <laughs> Uh, you know what I mean? But I just I played six and seven hours and, and I would usually sit with my guitar just, of course, unplugged. And I would listen to, I had a little clock radio and we I could pick up this A&M English station that would play jazz and blues. And I would just sit up, up till two in the morning almost every day and just play, 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 play. That's all I did. So, so. Was there anything that when you first started to play and you thought, I want to learn how to do that? I want to yeah. learn how to do that lick or that song. Was there anything that that was challenging to you that at one point or another you accomplished it and thought, wow. Like it, not it, really. It, no. No, no, not really. It was easy for me right away. I mean, it, I was just the first note I hit, and I had better vibrato than most people who played for 40 years. And, and, and it's going to sound like I'm an egomaniac here. Yeah, yeah, I'm full of myself, but not really, because later on I'll probably tell you all the things I suck at. So I, I own it and I know it. Phrase have, is my greatest strength. I have a really, really, really good vibrato and phrasing. Uh, I, I have really good ears and I still have today really good ears. Uh, and uh, it's for me, it's, it's never really been, what fascinates me has not really, of course it's what somebody plays technically but it's sound. I'm fascinated by sound. Now you can't get sound without physically playing something, but where some people are fascinated by the actual playing or the acrobatics or whatever, you know, you got a, a guy like Van Halen, of course his sound is, 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 that's half of it right there, but without the tapping and the craziness, right? Without the actual technical ability of what he's actually achieving, I mean, that's, that's the number one big shock maker to Eddie Van Halen's playing, to use him as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy like Albert Collins or B.B. King, it, it's much more simple. But it's the sound. When I heard Clapton with Blues Breakers, it's the sound. And that's why I'm such a big gearhead and working with my amps and pedals and guitars and not setting everything up. And I'm doing it on my own. So, you know, I've learned how to do that. When you got fascinated with the sound, how easy was it for you to think, this is the sound that I want to make. Like, how easy is that? Well, I will say like this. Of course, tone is in the fingers, but a gear help. Gear helps, right? You know, you can take the best race car driver, but if you put him in some piece of shit car, right. he ain't going to win the race. But he's going to get the best out of that car. Anybody can get. And gear is the same. I've heard great players with shitty gear. I've heard, and I, you know, uh, and then I've heard people with the best gear in the world sound like shit. But I always say the gear helps. Some people will say, well, the audience can't hear it, so it doesn't make a difference. Well, it does, because only one person has to hear that difference, and that's me. If I hear the difference, I'm inspired. If I'm inspired, I play better. If I'm inspired, I have more confidence. If I have more confidence, if I play better, if I enjoy it more, my, my band members will hear it, and the audience will hear it. Uh, at what age were you with sound or that tone or whatever became an important thing to you? Well, I was into hi-fi before I started playing the guitar. Right. And, uh, and I mean, I got a CD player in like 80, 84 or something. You know, I was one of the first guys in Denmark to get a CD, a CD player. You could only, there was very few, didn't barely had CDs. I remember buying my first couple of CDs. The selection was like 20 CDs or 40. 
That was it. Well, what what did you buy? Uh, I bought. This is funny. I bought ZZ Top Eliminator. Nice. And, yeah, and uh, and then I bought, I bought a fusion record uh, with an uh, Icelandic. Uh, I wouldn't call it smooth jazz because there's a lot more to it, but it's a band called Mezzo Forte. Forte. Uh, Mezzo Forte. Uh, how I don't even know how to pronounce it in English, right? Because I've always pronounced it in Danish, which was probably wrong. But uh, you know, it's kind of catchy pop-ish but very kind of an 80s version of weather report i guess but i was b really heavily into them uh and i got all that from from my father of course oh and then i think i bought i bought kiss with prince okay so think about that you already got diversity you <laughs> yeah. know what i mean you, you, you i mean those three albums you know uh, most people you listen to one thing and i've never done that even when I was in my blues phase, where I was, blues was my thing, right? I would listen to all kinds of other music. And I'd listen to jazz, or Scapitas and Night Train would follow. You know, of course, Miles Davis kind of blue. Allman Brothers, the dub, that double album they made. Yeah, yeah. They're going to dominate us with Clapton. Uh, you know, I mean, all that classic stuff would, would follow, uh, you know? So, but, but yeah, the sound is something I've gotten from my father because he would always show me and teach me about speakers, how they worked, about cables, about preamps, and about back in the day when analog ADDA converters, right, what takes the analog signal and converts it to digital, and then back again, you know, which is why a lot of the early CDs sound so dreadful, right? I mean, a, a good analog DA converter back then cost thousands of dollars, and now you can get one for 20 bucks in your iPod or iPhone, I mean, that sounds probably as good as anything did in the 90s. So do you think the sound that you seeked back when you were in your 20s is quite different from the sound that you look for in your playing today? Or do you think yeah. it's... Yeah, yes and no, yes and no. Uh, in, in a way, first, I hated Jimmy Page growing up. I liked Led Zeppelin. But I thought it was more of a commercial kind of pop thing. I was, I, for me, it was all about Cream right. and Clapton. I mean, I thought Jimmy Page was sloppy. And uh, I didn't really get it. I mean, I could hear what was going on, right? But I don't know. He was, I was so into Clapton. And I think Clapton if you, is such an incredible technician for what he was doing. I mean, he, he started everything, in my opinion. So did Hendrix, but Hendrix was super sloppy. A lot of his live stuff just isn't that great. I think it's overrated. Right. Uh, and you can really hear that, uh, which is why he didn't release most of it. He knew it. Uh, but but uh, of course I was into Hendrix. You know, I think when it comes to producing, Hendrix was at a whole different universe than Clapton, much more elaborate, much more artistic. Clapton was more about ego and guitar. And everything else get go fuck itself. Where Hendrix, I think, was really kind of a worldwide. I mean, quite amazing if you think about what he did, right? Bold as Love, Electric Ladyland, and some of the other stuff. I think that had a lot to do with the producer he met. Mm -hmm. But but nevertheless, I think that stuff still came from Hendrix. Uh, you know, uh, but but yeah. So so now I love Jimmy Page. He's like my go-to guy right now. And what do you think changed? I think I grew up. I think I, I, uh, 
Well, it was also kind of like I came full circle, right? I, I started being a Strat guy because Claxton was my guy, right? And he, so it was Blackie, that black Strat. And also that's what I could afford. I mean, a Strat in Denmark was like a third of the price of a Gibson. So I think I just kind of, I just played a Strat. And, and, you know, in my opinion, one of the greatest, oh yeah, Journeyman with Claxton from 89 mm-hmm. is a very versatile record. It's a masterpiece in my opinion. And I love it. It's one of my favorite albums, and it was like the fifth CD I ever bought. And I still love to love it to today, and it still holds today. And one of my favorite ballads, Robert Cray is on it. Yeah. Old Love is a Robert Cray tune, and he plays on it there. I love that. So I also played a Strat because it was Cray, Clapton, and it was in 89. And then I think this double live album, 24 Nights, came out in 91 and 92. I mean, I was just all about the Black Strat. Um, but because I'm such a perfectionist, and kind of OCD, and I'm so into hi-fi, I think my playing was very polished in a way, very clean. And I kept that all the way to playing in America and my 10 years in the Chitlin circuit, you know, Curtis Salgado, five years, Jennifer Magnus for a year, played a little bit with John Nemeth. Uh, you know, I mean, that stuff, I was pretty much a Strat guy. That changed with Steve Miller. and. I got into Gibsons. You know why? Because I couldn't afford one. <laughs> really? not, so you're not, not playing Strats anymore? Well, I have a Strat and it's really nice. I'm just tired of working so hard. You know, uh, I mean, Clapton said he loved the Strat because he, he he had to fight. And he liked it. He, he felt you had to fight it, you know. But I also think in, in the 70s, you know, he was so messed up, you know, pretty much stopped playing and and. I mean, almost died. I think it was George Harrison who got him out of his house in 1971, right? Late 71. Mm-hmm. Was it 72? And then his first album, that was Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. He did Delaney and Bonnie and stuff where he was playing a Gibson Les Paul, actually. And then he kind of got back out and then he did 461 Ocean Boulevard, which is one of the greatest albums ever recorded, I think. Almost No Guitar, uh, kind of a country-style album, uh, a lot of acoustics, but... It's that clean strat, and I think I really gravitated towards that. I actually loved those mid-late 70s Clapton albums, even though I know it was his the worst time of his life. Uh, uh, I didn't know at the time. Yeah, I, I wonder, so because of your love of the blues and R&B, was, that, was it important for you to come to the States? Like, how did you make that decision to say, I'm going to the States and... Well, because I'm, like I said, I'm a perfectionist to the core, and my friends and and we were all just kind of emulating american stuff in in denmark but i'm like i was all the way down to like how you dress how you eat where you live and i just thought that i think i had an early quote what was it i said when i was younger i don't say that no more but at a point of time i was wearing cowboy boots religiously right because steve gatt was wearing cowboy boots all the musicians were in cowboy boots right especially in the 90s right i always said I remember walking, I was downtown 6th Street, actually, and I walked into this bar downtown. I can't remember what it was called. And I noticed the way my heels sounded walking on that wooden floor. It was like a Western movie, you know? I mean, straight up. Nobody pays attention to that shit. So I know it may sound stupid to an American who's listening to this, but from an outsider, I just, I pay a lot of attention to detail. And that actually mattered. 
And I remember it was like I'm walking in, and then I walked up and ordered the worst beer in the world, Budweiser, right? <laughs> half rice, half grain, rice to cut cost. Probably one of the worst beers in the world. And I came from Europe, but we have killer beer. It, it made no sense. But I wanted to immerse myself in the music. So I wanted to eat what people ate, drink what people drink. I wanted to to smell the smells of these streets and you know and I wanted everything. I wanted the full experience. So which is probably why the first year over here, you know, I was staying at worn down motels and 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 it was it was dangerous and it was stupid and it and but I did it because that's how dedicated I I was. I I wanted to feel it. I was I didn't want to emulate. I wanted to play it for real. And I just felt the only way to really play it for real was to feel like you're an American. I wanted complete, I couldn't just sit over in Denmark, you know, at some hipster bar outside drinking a, you know, European beer with, with people speaking Danish everywhere. It wasn't enough for me. So I wonder you know? what, what your image of America was living in Denmark. And then when you actually got to the States, how different that thing was or how similar it was to what you had in mind? It was exactly what I had in mind. No difference whatsoever. New York was exactly like taxi driver. <laughs> you know, my, mine is, of course, me being in the middle of a gun battle or something. Right. I didn't see that happen. But it's exactly the same. I mean, I lived at hotels. like I lived at motels like that. Right. You know, my neighbors were drug dealers. I knew the hookers. I mean, I, I knew I mean, that was just the people we hung out with. I hadn't I never had problems. Even though I looked like a twelve-year-old when I, me and twenty, when I was, I came over here when I was twenty-four, and uh, I probably looked like a fifteen-year-old, you know. But but because I think because of my character, my my sincerity and my honesty, and my kind of European kind of boldness, uh, which is not on purpose. I didn't. I mean, it's just kind of how I work culturally. I think I avoided getting my ass kicked or getting killed because I think people respected that. A couple of times I got close. I offended a couple of people a few times, and and I kind of went, "Oh shoot, this isn't good," <laughs> right? You know. But I mean, but then I it ended up kind of actually coming in my favor, and I actually was favored because of that with some people that were good to be friends with. Other than coming to the states to just get closer to the music, to the country, to the whole vibe, did you have any goals? Was there something that you wanted to achieve by when you were here, and did you give yourself a certain time frame to achieve that? I had two goals. My number one goal was to get the fuck out of Denmark, because at the time, late '90s techno music and industrial techno was taking over Europe, hmm. and I'm telling you, you couldn't get away from it. You're in a country with five million people, the group of people that like. I would say real music. Uh, I understand techno. I get it. I, I grew up. I understand what people like about it. But but back in the day, so real music uh, was maybe, I mean, a few thousand people out of five million. You, you, I mean, you'd go play a, a, a joint somewhere where you play soul music or, you know, a blues, and there'd be nobody at the dance floor. There'd be like five people in the room. And then when you're taking a break and you say, oh, we'll be back in 30 minutes, you barely could could say two words and techno music would be blasting louder than the band. Hmm. And all of a sudden there's a hundred people and the and you're like, what the fuck? Where does these people come from? I mean, it was, it was literally like somebody just hit a button and boom, like it was a movie editor. I'm not fucking kidding. 
and, and then, you know, we go out, we have a 30 minute break, we come back and it's hustling and bustling and it's loud. And the minute that music was turned off, you know, you turn your amp on and you, the mic feedbacks, so, you know, it goes, and you kind of hit it, you know, okay, everybody, boom, everybody's gone. And then you're standing there again, playing for five people. <laughs> and you're like, what happened? Where, where are these people hiding? You're looking for a trap door or something, or a mirror is an optical illusion. I'm not dramatizing this. Right. That's what it was to play real music in Denmark in like, let's say, 97, 99, that period. You know, all the bands were getting laid off from the major record labels that have been on the labels for 20 years. I mean, everybody was struggling, even, 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 even big bands. It was a weird time. So I felt lonely as hell. Uh, it was hard to get a band going. People only wanted to do funk. And funk in Denmark wasn't really real funk. They knew Prince, of course, and Tower of Power, but they didn't know Bill Withers. You know, they didn't know Average White Band. They didn't know Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, you know, they didn't know James. I mean, they knew some James Brown, but, you know, a greatest hit was what you could find. You know, they had no idea how he sounded in the 60s, you know, when he did Apollo versus... Wait, he actually has a great voice, right? He can sing. Mm -hmm. So it was just... The musical knowledge was lacking. The most famous funk band, and, and of course, there was only one because the music industry is so small that there's only like room for like one funk band. So the, the singer, this was a band called Zap Zap. And they, had, they were popular for like five years. And they on one of the biggest late night shows. And the host, uh, who's a big music lover and actually used to have a radio show, he's quite quite skilled he was he would he told the singer and, and 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 we didn't have a lot of black folks in denmark so this guy i think was from turkey or something so instantly you have more credit right because a, a person who's not white is kind of like exotic you know it's a novelty people are excited about it so you i mean i used to think any black person could sing and dance i i thought that when i came to america seriously i thought it would you were just if you're black you had a great voice and you could dance and it's not from a racist point of view. It's just when you grow up in a predominantly 90% white culture, you know, this is Viking country here we're talking about. Right. You just don't know better. <laughs> the only thing I know about black folks is what I see on TV, you know? So, so I didn't know better. So it's kind of the funny thing that this band got really popular. And the fact that they had a person of color made him even more popular. So people thought it was real. They're like, no check needed. You know, no, nobody, you didn't, oh, it's, he's cool. You know, <laughs> that was enough, right? Uh, so anyway, so so the guy there, he asked him, he says, well, I can hear that's a lot of Al Green. You you have a lot of, you, you must be influenced by Al Green because I can really hear it in the way you sing. You know what he said? <laughs> what? He says, Al who? <laughs> that was the moment I realized that, that there was no hope for Denmark at that time. Okay, so I'm serious. Op, you said two reasons. One was to get out. What was the second reason? Yeah. So the second thing was that I was so heavily into rhythm and blues music, R&B, rhythm and blues, that, uh, like I said before, I wanted to submerge myself. I wanted to master this skill. I, I, I wanted to sound like an American musician, not a European, emulating. It wasn't enough for me to play something well. I wanted to to embrace it in every part that I possibly could. And that was why I came over here. It was stupid. 
I mean, you know, but when you're young, sometimes stupidity or ignorance or naivety or whatever you want to call it can benefit you because, you know, you're, you're more reckless. Uh, when you get older, you take less chance. So you sometimes gain less. But, but I did it. So number one, I wanted to get out of Denmark. And number two, I wanted to play rhythm and blues. And I actually had a goal. I wanted to become the guitar player with a singer called Curtis Salgado in Portland, Oregon, who I've heard sing on certain albums in uh, Denmark. Most known was there, uh, there is a live with, uh, there's a live album with Roomful of Blues. His name is actually not on the album, but that's a whole different story, but he's singing on that. And it just blew me away. And I heard him as a guest singer on a few other albums. And he, I just thought he was, he was the current best blues singer right now. Wow. Uh, in the world. That for me, I thought he was the guy who was younger and who had a band and, and was were, were, were really just the shit, right? So that's the guy I wanted to play with. There's another guy less famous that, that I don't really think made it much out of Portland, but his name is Paul DeLay. He's a harp mm -hmm. player and a singer who I really came to care for a lot. Uh, but uh, that was kind of plan B, you know? Okay, so for the moment you landed into, into the States... How long did it take for you to become the guitar player for Curtis Salgado? I think it took me about 10 months, maybe a year. That's it? Yeah. <laughs> wow. 350 million people, right? And I didn't know anybody. <laughs> so yeah. how did that happen? That's crazy. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we, we may or may not go back and forth because my story is 10 hours and we only have a couple max, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but so I'm, you know... I originally came over here with a friend, 99. I sold everything I had. And uh, I had a good friend of mine that I actually shared an apartment with in Denmark, and he traveled with me. I was going to go either way, but he said, fuck it, I need a break too. So we traveled, and that's when we did, you and I have talked about this before, where we, we literally did Greyhound bus. from. It was The trip was New York City, Chicago, New Orleans. No, Chicago, Memphis, Nashville, New Orleans, uh, Houston. No, we never stayed in Houston. We just stopped at the Greyhound station. <laughs> and went to Austin, right? Uh, and we eventually ended up in Austin, staying here for three months. We, we actually ran broke, totally broke, had no money. I had to call an old buddy of mine and ask him for money to a, to, to, for a flight home. Of course, I paid him back, but, but I did. But when I was here, I, got to, I briefly kind of bumped into a guy. His name is Derek O'Brien. He's an Austin legend. And people in the know, he's one of the greatest blues players in the world. And he's always just been Derek O'Brien. You know, he plays the same now as he played 30 years ago. And it's great. Don't change nothing. He sounded great then. He sounds great now. He's just he's just a bad boy. And he used to hang with everybody. Stevie Ray and all all those cats used to play together. Jimmy Bond, and your good friends. And, and he had a, a jam session here. In the, it, no, it wasn't a jam session, actually. But it was Rusko Vig on bass, George Rains on drums, sometimes Frosty. And uh, and then it was Malfred Milligan from Storyville you know, on vocals. And there was another singer. I can't remember his name. He was really great. I can't remember the organ player. It wasn't Red Young. Nevertheless, it was a great band. And the day before I was supposed to go back to Denmark, which of course was a big defeat for us, or for me especially. Right. Um, uh, at that time, at that time, uh, five bucks you can go and listen to him. So I did. And I, so in, after the show, I just approached Derek and said, hey man, I know this is a really stupid question, 
but I really want to move over here and, and start playing. What what do I do? And of course he looked at me like, I mean, I mean, I, I admit it, I just did. It, 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 I mean, what kind of question is that? You know, it's <laughs> totally stupid. But then again, you know, I was naive and, and ignorant and I'm from Denmark, 5 million people, most, I mean, bunch of white folks and what do we know? But it actually paid off. So I, I don't know why, because he actually invited me to, to sit in. Uh, which they don't really do. They have guests sit in, they're friends, like they right. know, like high caliber players. I don't know why, I, I have no clue why, why the hell he would offer that. But I said, unfortunately, I can't. I'm leaving tomorrow, the, the red eye at five in the morning. I mean, we were, I didn't even have my, I didn't bring my guitar either because we were traveling and I didn't want to get, I knew I, I, I would probably have it stolen because we only stayed at literally motels and, and like really, really bad places. Uh, and it was too dangerous. I mean, when I was in the Greyhound, I would, we would, I mean, I had some Sony headphones, I remember, and I would literally take a knife and scrape off the Sony logo, like <laughs> branding on clothes. I would take a Sharpie and, 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 and color over it. Oh, yeah, because we were living among drug addicts and prostitutes and just the low, low life of society. I mean, real, you know, uh, I don't mean that in a judging way, but but it was. It was really, it was really dangerous, and it was really stupid. You know, always the, the cheapest greyhounds were usually at night, and I don't know if you've been in a greyhound station at four in the morning in Houston. It's not the safest place you want to be. I can imagine. You know, uh, and you know, people are doing drugs or turning tricks on like a, you got a ten-hour ride on the greyhound in the middle of the night. I mean, you, you know, it just you can't say anything. It's, it's, it's crazy what what we've seen. It's some of it is I can't even tell you because. You know, it it wouldn't be right to say that on right. on a live broadcast. Right. But it wasn't a joke. Uh, you know, so so yeah. So I told him, listen, do you mind if can I have your number? I'm planning on just going back home, working, and coming back in three months. And of course, he looked at me like, what? Oh yeah, <laughs> sure, okay, fine. But I did just that. And I remember being in Denmark, and I called him, and I you know three months later, and I said, hey Derek, you remember me? And of course he did, because it's not every day that some idiot comes up and asks a dumb question, you know? So he did. And I said, listen, I'm going to be in Austin tomorrow. Is it cool? Can I still sit in? And, and he, he didn't have a choice, but say yes. So he did. And uh, I brought my guitar this time. Of course, he pulled me over at customs. Uh, and because uh, he just, he saw I had the guitar and I'd just been there. Yeah. So he pulled me over and I got in this little room and he said, what's with the guitar? And I said, oh, I'm a music fan. I'm, I, I, and I play music. Are you here to work? Work. I said, no. I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm especially great or anything. I'm just, just, you know, totally screwed. And, and, you know, and, and it's funny. They said, well, how much money do you got? I want to see the money you got. I had $1,500 in an envelope. And then I had a credit card that was maxed out. And then uh, they said, is that all you got? I mean, because you can't, you know, you don't want to let somebody in. But where it looks, it just looks shady as hell. Right. But I just looked at him stone cold and I said, "Listen, man. I only brought fifteen hundred dollars in cash. I mean, I just kind of feel wouldn't it be stupid to travel around with like an envelope full of cash? I mean, the Danish embassy told me it was a lot safer to just bring a credit card. And it was funny. And I just looked at that officer straight in the eyes. Total bluff, right? Because I have nothing, zero. That was it. Fifteen hundred bucks. That was all I had to my name. And he looks at me and go, hmm. Yeah, that that was wise. Okay, all right. Well, you can go, and then they let me in. <laughs> and I know, crazy, right? Uh, 
you know, for a minute there, I thought my dreams were in, 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 the, in the shitter, right? So I go down, I sit in, long, long story short, so I'm just going to go through it quick. And Russ Gobeck, the bass player, super nice guy, liked my playing. Because I ended up sitting in, I played two songs, and Daryl Ryan just left the stage. He's the other right. guitar player. And he just let me play that whole set by myself. So it was a big win for me. That was the that was a benchmark in my life. And and what do you? So when they call out songs, you know everything they want, they're calling out. No, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. But you know, I I have good ears. It's not fusion. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, I kind of know the rules. You got good ears. There was no egos on stage. Everybody was just generous, and sweet sweet people and everybody helped roscoe was if there was a problem he would whisper it to me or if there was something you know i just i mean it, it went over it was no problem but also you kind of become superhuman because once you you know when i saw derek leave i'm like okay well that's a good sign you know uh, there's no rush to get me down obviously mm -hmm. you know so and in the break roscoe big asked if I wanted to stay at his house. He had a little mother-in-law apartment in the back of his house. And I pretty much stayed with him for about three weeks. Then I had to move out because his wife at the time, sister, was going to move in there. But had she not moved in, I would probably have stayed there longer. But Roscoe was very generous, and he kind of helped getting me started. Uh, but I was in Austin. I wanted to go to Chicago and, 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 and play and do records. Of course, I was you know dumb and naive, right? And uh, and that's why I moved to Dallas, lived there for a little while, hang around, hung around in, in the blues environment, did a lot of jamming. And in Dallas, I lived there for about three months. I worked at a car wash in the day and and played at night. And I got some gigs. And that's kind of where I actually started, really started to learn how to play American music. It's it's a different way, and especially in Texas, the, the things are you don't teach you that at school. Right. You learn you learn that at the bar. You learn that playing with other people. There's a, a dirtiness to it, uh, you know, that 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 you just can't pick up in school. You know, that that's a and that's a thing I think I, I learned a lot playing here because I played four or five nights a week, and then I would go to Chicago because Chicago blues was kind of a thing, right? Yeah, for sure. And I stayed at, at again a really awful hotel, twenty one and over hotel, and it's twenty one and over for a reason. Uh, you know, and I stayed there for three months. I, I was lucky to, I got hired in the house band of a blues club called Kingston Mines. Nice club. So I, yeah, Kingston Mines. It's a nice club, yeah. but you know, for white folks, for tourists. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, it was mostly, you know, it was mostly black bands that were playing there. So for me, uh, it it was it was the real deal, you know. This was people that have been playing for generations, playing this music. It was their music, and that's originally what I wanted to do. I wanted to learn it as close as I could from the source. I'm not saying white people can't play blues. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the blues is that's we have that from black folks, you know. But are you thinking while you're playing that you're getting like? Can you feel you getting better and getting it? Oh yeah, now, that it's not changing. My, my boss there, J. W. Williams. He used to be friends with Otis Rush, right? I mean, he knew Magic Sam. I mean, and it was like, for me, I'm like, you got a kid from Denmark. Now I'm hanging out with somebody who used to hang with this. With, I mean, <laughs> right. that, those people are like my heroes, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a little closer than the best thing on, on, on late is, is on late night is a funk band where the lead singer don't know who Al Green is. 
<laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, it was just, I mean, that's the level we're at here. So for me, it was a really big deal. Uh, and we were playing for, for a lot of people. Uh, we played for, you know, on weekdays too, where there wasn't a lot of people. But yeah. because it's Chicago and because it's a different way of entertainment, I, we were just, we all had long guitar chords. We, 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 I remember playing once there was five, there was one table, five people. This was a Tuesday at 8 p.m. or something. So we walked on, we walked on, we sat at their table and played like three songs in front of them, right there. <laughs> so I learned about showmanship, uh, which is a thing I feel black folks do a lot better than white folks. They dress better, they are more theatrical, uh, they are not as serious about, they have a lot more play in their music. They don't, they like laughing, laugh at each other, they give each other shit. White folks are much more reserved in general, I feel. Right. You're more worried about, I don't know, other stuff. It was for me, that was the first time I had a chance for me to kind of learn what showmanship would be like. Or, or instead of standing up there upset that people aren't digging you, it's you actually, it's actually our job to make people dig us. It's not the job, the audience's job to dig us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just changed my mentality of... of of what what soul music was about and and most of all it was about people where in dallas i went to the blues jams and of course there's always people in music music is about people but it was more about the people in the know the 20 people that'll show up in the audience or maybe the 10 people that show up at the jam it was friends it was a community that was all great but what i saw in chicago was a bigger level where it was actually bread and butter and where it was people come to Chicago to see that kind of music. Mm -hmm. So you got a new audience every night. It's easy to to win over the audience you've been winning over for the next 10 for the last 10 years. You know everybody the same people coming out. That's not a skill. You don't need a skill for that. You know what I mean? Everybody loves you. Right. That's easy. It's easy to win a game when you're home. But all of a sudden now it's a new audience every night and it's different and we don't know. So that was weird. So being able to see how it was approached uh, from uh, it was it was real it was show business it was entertainment it wasn't gigs it was shows so so that's what Chicago did for me it it just opened my eyes to to that whole thing you know you play three to four hours three to four hour you know sets yeah I, I, I mean I'd be done at four in the morning so where do you go from Chicago well I I met a guy up there Ronnie Baker Brooks yeah and I met him I met him through J W Williams pretty much. Roscoe gave me a contact, and his name is Felton Cruz. Felton Cruz used to play with Miles Davis in the 80s. Wow. Lives in Chicago. Yeah, really great cat. Ended up kind of in, in the blues R&B environment in Chicago. And I called him. He was the one who recommended that really shitty hotel. He said, man, I, because I said, <laughs> if you were broke and have no money, where do I stay? And he said, man, I wouldn't do this, but I've heard about this motel. I mean, it was awful. We had like SWAT teams there, and I mean, it was... Yeah, twice we had a SWAT team. I'd come home from work, and there's the, the team walking out with machine guns and bulletproof vests and helmets, and I'm supposed to go up and go to sleep, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy shit. But, yeah, so so Felton, Roscoe gives me the contact, Felton Cruz. Felton gives me the, 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 the job for J.W. Williams, that you're looking for a guitar player. I'd been in Chicago for, for three months at that time. Which included call, just calling up alligator recorders on the phone. Say, hey, man, I want to do some records. Uh, you know, I can play. I, I just moved to town. What do I do to get, who do I talk to? 
And that's the dumbest thing. Who think you can go in and call her? But that's what I did, right? Because I figure if you don't ask, I can always get no. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I just did it because, like I said, I didn't know anybody really. I didn't really have any help. I didn't have a mom to just pay my credit card. I mean, it was all, I was all on my own. So I, so I just I, I reached out every single possible scenario I could think of to make it in this business I took advantage of. Um, and uh, I was probably too optimistic because I hadn't really yet got, gotten burned yet. I was still a dreamer, right? And so, but that, of course, didn't work. She laughed at me and pretty much hung up on me, and, and that was the end of that. But so J.W. Williams, I go out. Within three months, I do the audition. He hires me on the spot, and I play with him for nine months. Through him, we used to play out at a club on the south side called Artists, very small club where everybody would used to jam. It was crazy. He had a DJ who would play in the breaks, and the DJ was louder than the band. I mean, it was this weird bar. I've never seen anything like it. Like the actual bar of the bar, of the room, right, was in the middle. And it, like most people, you would just, you have a room, they maybe take a quarter of that bar out or less and, and make that be the bar so you can have more people. You can sell more drinks. But no, not this one. This one was like there was mirrors in the ceiling. And in the middle of the room, there was this bar, like an oval-shaped bar. And that took up, that, it was literally half of the capacity of that club was the bar. I mean, it wasn't like thought through that well, right? It was just a guy who liked music and wanted a place for people to come hang out. But it was, it was so cool. So that became the community we played there every Sunday, including Christmas and New Year. And people would come up and jam. And that was the first time I've ever been in a guitar duel. You know, like like you see the movies or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was me and Ronnie Baker Brooks. Ronnie comes in. You know, he's the son of Lonnie Brooks. Mm -hmm. He's familiar with Lonnie Brooks. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and, you know, he grabs the other guitar player's guitar and, and sing. And everybody knew him, right? So, you know, the, the community, I mean, it's just crazy how they're behind you. Uh, everybody's going crazy and. You know, the people are tipping and throwing $1 bills and, you know, and 20s. And I mean, it's just crazy. I've never seen life and community in a way. I miss that. I've never seen it since. But anyway, he it comes to the solo. He plays some stuff and gives it to me. I play and was lucky to impress him. And then we start cutting back and forth. You know, we're playing, he's playing a lick and, and I'm playing a lick. And eventually I play a few licks. He, he can't play right on the spot. So he brings the band down, and I can't remember what he said, but he, he brings the band all the way down, right, and says something about me. I can't remember, but it was positive and pretty much along the lines of, man, this guy can play. You guys give, have to give it up for this guy because I wasn't really – people didn't bother me, but in the first month, month and a half I played there, people didn't really talk to me. They kind of avoided me. Right. You know, because it wasn't really my hang. You could all, everybody could see I wasn't from around there, and and that's fine. You know, I don't. That's okay. I get it. But after that, I was in the family. People were buying drinks for me. Everything was cool, man. It was just family. Wow. So Ronnie happened to. I asked Ronnie, "Hey, do you know? You know, you're a blues guy. Maybe you know this guy <laughs> again, right? The, the the dumb guy from from Denmark with five million people thinks that." Because you're a musician, you must know this guy in a, in a country of 350 million. But but I asked him, and he's like, oh, yeah, I know Curtis. And I'm like, fuck, wow, okay. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, so random. And so I so sometimes you got to do something stupid. I guess that's the lesson here. 
Don't be afraid of doing something that seems stupid or naive or whatever. Ask fucking questions. That's what people need to do. Don't be afraid of asking questions. And don't just, don't be afraid. Of, don't keep it to just your community or your friends. Get out there. Talk to new people. Yeah. You know, uh, that's important, I think. So anyway, I called Curtis. He had a guitar player, so he said, you know what? And he was very nice. And I think he was kind of flattered in a way, you know, coming from Denmark, you know, and I, you know, of course, we're blowing smoke up his ass. I meant it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I thought he was one of the greatest singers right now, or the greatest singer right now doing this stuff and putting a new spin on it, not just doing, you know, a lot of people, they'll just, you know, we'll just put a blue suit on and it'll be 50s blues. Do you have a big hollow body guitar and a tweet basement uh, and a hat? Or something, you know, and, and, and it's blues, right? But it kind of, and some of it is very good, but it kind of also is not really, I mean, people do complain that, that blues music isn't doing well, but I mean, if if you haven't changed it, you're still playing the stuff from the 50s, maybe, I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons, you know? So Curtis was kind of doing it in a new way. Like he's a harmonica player, but he wouldn't play it constantly. Mm-hmm. Out of 10 songs, he maybe play harmonica on like three songs. He'd do some funk, some R&B, some soul. He'd really mix it up. And I, I liked that because that was all the music I liked. So so I thought he was one of those people who could probably take it to the next level. So anyway, he wasn't uh, he wasn't looking for a guitar player. But I told him, okay, I'm going to call you once a month just to be sure, which is dumb. And he just laughed, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Talk for half an hour. Okay, so that was, of course, a letdown. But in the meantime, I met a guy in uh, you know who stayed up from L.A., guitar player, who who stayed up one late night in Chicago when we were playing. And he was like last guy in the room, right? We had drinks and stuff. And, and he said, you got to come to LA. I can totally hook you up, man. He thought I was a great player, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's nice to hear when you don't know many people and yeah. you don't really have any money. It's nice to hear somebody say, hey, you all right. Because like I said earlier, I've always sucked at everything in my life. I've, nev- I've never gotten, never. My whole childhood, I went nowhere where I got a compliments. So, you know, it's nice when somebody tells you that you're good at something or they like what you do. Yeah. So, so um, I figured, you know, I'd been here in Chicago for a year. I knew a lot of people and I, I, I noticed a lot of people there had kind of been doing the same thing for 20 years. And I realized if I stayed in Chicago, it could have been me who had done the same stuff for 20 years. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not judging. But that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to tour. And I've heard this thing about the Chitlin circuit, right? That's what I wanted to do. So I learned it. I was in Chicago. I learned it um, and from what I felt. And I wanted to move on. So this was perfect. So uh, at the time, I was traveling with, with, a, with a girl. We weren't boy and girlfriends, but she had a car. And she wanted to get out of Dallas. So we kind of hooked up. And uh, I traveled with her. It was cheaper, of course, to stay at the hotel. And rent was cheaper. Eventually, we got a, a studio apartment in in, uh, in Chicago, and it was it's cheaper, right? So yeah. we were friends. Right. So she was cool with going to LA. She thought that was great. Her brother was kind of at the at the time had moved out close, uh, Southern California. So it was cool. So we drive down, and he told me, "Just call me when you get there, man. I'll hook you up." So I was excited. <laughs> so we come down there, and I call him up. Phone been disconnected. So I quit my job in Chicago, spent a bunch of money driving all the way through USA. Now I'm in fucking California, living at a campsite, you know, and my connection is gone. Wow. I know. That sucked. (laughs) 
you know? So uh, me at the time, my papers weren't quite in order, and I couldn't really get a job. Uh, the girl I was with at the time, she was lucky. Well, if you can say lucky, but it was a job. She worked at Starbucks. Well, we got into an apartment, which was it was a one-bedroom. It was $1,500 a month. Think about it. Back then in 2000. Wow. We couldn't fucking afford it. And we, it was just hell, man. I went through some of the darkest times of my life, man. I just felt I was stranded. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get a job. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have a car. L.A. without a car, right? I mean, it was – and I didn't want to go back to living in a dangerous neighborhood, man. I didn't want to get killed. I didn't want to get in with the wrong hang. And I, I really contemplated that this may be it for me. But I didn't just think, oh, I'll just go back to Denmark. It, it was more serious than that. Uh, I, you know, I've suffered. We don't have to go into that a lot, but I suffered from depression and anxiety in various times of my life. That stuff never really leaves you. You just kind of learn how to deal with it, mm -hmm. think differently. But I was, uh, it was hard. I mean, I, I, I was, I got to be honest with you. I was really careful, really seriously thinking about just checking out. Wow. Yeah. At Golden Gate Bridge, man. I knew you, once you, you can't stop once you jump, right? And I figured you probably just knock you out. You kind of just float away, and things would be over. And uh, and uh, I, I it was I remember going through a week, kind of thinking about what, how would I go about doing that? What would my family think? How would I? What what would the consequences be of that? But the thing was, it wasn't that I didn't want to live. I just ha I just couldn't live with life as it was, and I didn't know how to change it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So I am curious so, that when you're in, yeah. in that very dark place, how do you mm -hmm. get out of that? Ah, yeah, man. It, it's that's a good question. I think a lot of people don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, we still hear it, and, and the thing is also people that know about depression or anxiety or whatever it's not something you always see coming you can literally go from feeling the best you've ever had next minute you you can't manage getting through the next five minutes right you're just looking at the day you're getting up in the morning and you can barely get through your morning cup of coffee you're just like oh my god how am i going to get through this day it's like every hour seems like a lifetime and at the same time, you're losing your mind because of boredom. And it's not like some people would be, you know, oh, you just walk out. Oh, you're just not, oh, you're just choosing to look at it the wrong way. You know, or, or oh, why don't you just go for a walk? Or you should meditate or, you know, uh, Mr. Positive. Right. You know, uh, and, 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 you know, that that's the people who don't understand that because that's not what depression is. Uh, depression is exactly not knowing how to get out of it or not be able to, to simply not having the motivation. But but you said that you've it. gone through this before. So is that an advantage not, or not? Not at, that, not at that level. Oh, okay. Not at that level. Uh, because I've always thought that I, I mean, I was 100% positive when I came to America, I was going to make it. 100%. There was no doubt in my mind. I just knew. So what did that mean? What was making it? Making it meant being able to make I want my first number one goal was to be, I wanted my musicianship to be accepted by the musicians that I respected. Right. If my idols or the people I respected would look at me and go, you know what? You all right. 
and I was good enough to hang playing in that scene, that was my number one goal. The next was hopefully to be able to make a living of it. Right. And also embracing myself in American culture, in the diversity of America. And, and it comes down to, you know, the difference between the scenery in Texas to Portland, Oregon, to California, to Chicago, to the Midwest, uh, all the amazing things. America is such a diverse country. It's like, I mean, like all the states almost in, it's the difference between France and Denmark, right? Or Spain and Denmark. You can almost, besides from the language, you can almost find that same diversity mm-hmm. in America. Uh, and, and the foods, I'm a huge foodie, right? So I just, I took it all in. I just, I mean, I generally love life, man. You know, it's, it's, and I, I love diversity. I mean, I got a rush from it. You know, I'm in Nashville and all of a sudden I'm, I'm in the back of somebody's Trans Am going to his family for a barbecue. They never met me before. They take me in. Now I'm being fed and there's pie and ribs and music. There's 20 people outside and everything is good. There's a smile on and I have a place to sleep for free. Nobody's asking. I'm just treated like that wouldn't happen in my country. We're a lot more closed-minded. I mean, not closed-minded. We're more closed. Right. You know, and so so I, I just love that that warm embrace of people, mostly in the South. I think it's more a Southern thing. West Coast has it too for a little bit of a different way. But it, I, I really loved America. I mean, I really loved America, and I loved it so much I gave up my own citizenship later, right? So, uh, but, so tell me, when you're in that darkest place, how do you get out of it? I think luck. i got to be honest with you. Uh, I will say, though, uh, my stepfather, you know, who's an actor, so he has he's a little bit more, well, you know, well-rounded, maybe compared to my 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 my, my original my, my real father and, and and my mom you know when, when you study shakespeare and and uh, all these old cats you know i mean real shit uh you can't you're into philosophy man you know right. uh, a lot of that is tragic stories and you know stage actors are usually pretty heavy people because the the actually felt it, the stand on stage, the the you know, I mean, a lot of growing up, man. Every New Year's, that's what that we would celebrate it in 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 that space with other actors, or producers, directors, uh, and and that was I was, it was never sports that was talked about around the dinner table when I grew up. It was arts and it was philosophy, and and theater in 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 that way heavy conversation and i've always loved it it never tired me out uh i just always just absorbed it as a kid uh but so he called me and i i think i called him collect of course and i think i kind of managed to in a way tell him where i was at in my head without directly saying i'm gonna go to golden bridge and jump right right uh, and he somehow managed to kind of, he bought some time. I think it was some, I think he, he said something along the lines of, you know, you can't tell somebody who feels something what the feeling is wrong. Right. That's the number one thing. You can't tell somebody who's in fear why they shouldn't be in fear. You know, so a person afraid of flying don't really care that it's much safer than it is driving in a car. Mm-hmm. If you're in panic, if you're in fear, you're not in an emotional space where you can necessarily be pragmatic like that. And and Kim really understood that in a way, I think. 
most people wouldn't. Uh, so I think it was something along the lines of sometimes can you just get through an hour or a day? And I think I can't remember exactly, but it was something like, why don't we talk in two days? I think maybe he sent me a little bit of money. It could have been 150 bucks. It could have been 200 because, you know, it was hard for us too. We had just had a mattress on the floor right. and a small little 14 inch color TV in the room. And we, we didn't really have money. We didn't eat very well. I mean, you know, we, we were eating like leftovers and stuff from people, you know, Alicia at the time, the girl I was traveling with worked at a pizzeria too. And she would bring home people's leftover food. And that's, that would be our food because we were that poor. It was, it was really rough. It was one step from homeless. Uh, and sometimes the food would be, I mean, it almost was like eating out of a dumpster. It was, it was, it was really scary. It was, and it was eye opening. I, 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 that I, I hadn't seen that coming when I, when I left for, when I left Denmark, it was kind of a shock mm -hmm. and uh, I, it, it was really troubling for me at some point. You just can't, how much more can you deal with? So, uh, I think Kim, he's, you know, said, you know, go get, get a real meal, you know, maybe buy a, buy a bottle of wine, have a glass of wine, you know, maybe take a walk, you know, we, we kind of, I think we kind of, he helped me kind of set up a procedure. So I kind of had a little bit of a schedule I could follow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and he said, let's talk in two days. Okay. He said, just promise me. I, I understand what you feel, but please work with me here. Give me five days. Okay. Give me, let, let me just carry you through these five days. Wow. And that's what, yeah, and, and, and that's what he did. So, so we kept in touch like once a day or every second day. And he kind of helped me, I think, get a schedule. So it was easier for me kind of to get through two or three hours. I had something like a carrot. Yeah. I, I had something to do. I had a goal or something to, you know, uh, and, and, and after those five, five days, I felt differently because I realized that I managed to get through five days. Hmm. So I realized, you know what I mean? It's like before I couldn't, I couldn't get through 15 minutes. What an amazing gift. Yeah, it was, it was, but I also think it was, there was a lot of luck involved too, you know, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I don't think I could, I don't think I could ever like go through with it. Cause you know, one thing is talking about it. I think more people, then would admit to it have been in, in, in that kind of, you know, realm with what I'm talking about, but, um, it comes out in different ways. You know, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy who gets to get, who gets hooked on alcohol and then I just drink my days away or do drugs. I, I, cause that, that, that always seemed defeating to me. Like, why that? Because you're not changing your life. You're just making it worse. And everybody knows it. you're the only one in the room. I, right. Right. Well, you know, it doesn't matter how high you are. The world hasn't changed. So, so that never appealed, drugs never appealed to me, alcohol, not in that way. So I never did it. I would rather just check out. I can't have it my way. Okay, I'm checking out. But Have you ever gone through another dark period like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I have. Uh, different, you know, but, but similar. Uh, absolutely. And but not quite like that where I needed direct intervention. Because uh, he literally held my hand through those days, through that five, five days. But do you, when you go through that again... Do you refer back to this incident and think I do? I got through this. I do. I do. Uh, you know, it's sometimes 
you know, I mean, I've done that through this whole COVID thing when everything was exploding and we had a lockdown and, yeah. you know, every, every fucking, every month, you know, another 10 million lost their jobs or 20 million lost their jobs. Uh, and my, my industry was gone. Uh, I mean, I thought maybe I'd lose my house. I, I lost my whole year's income, my whole year's income. And, you know, I'm telling you one thing now, the majority of suicides, uh, family breakups, violence, drug addiction, uh, robberies, assaults happens because of financial stress. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can also tell you another thing. I'm now 45. I came over here when I was 25. Uh, I don't want to be poor again. Sorry. I just... It was 10 years of my life. I lived below poverty, living on about thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars $14,000 a year. I don't want to do it again. Okay, so you go through this dark period. So here's the thing. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so I'm in, in pretty much what's the darkest spot in my life. And uh, things are not well. In the meantime, from my left Chicago to now, we are like three or four months into it. And I've been calling Curtis once a month, as I said I would. Of course, same conversation, laughing and yeah, I have a guitar player. <laughs> right. In the meantime, also, I went to a Radio Shack, bought a $20 recorder and went to a guitar center and pretended to borrow an amp to try an amp out. And then I, I just turned on the recorder and recorded myself playing. Really the lamest demo in the world. <laughs> you know, but that's, that, that's all I had. I played some funk, some blues, some different shuffles a soul ballad, like maybe it was 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And I'd sent that to him. So that's what happens. That's that four months until I hit that dark spot. So I get through that five days with the help of, 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 of my stepfather and uh, everything is shit. All of a sudden the phone rings. It's Curtis Salgado. He heard the tape. He wants me to fly up for an audition. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, and, and I'm just like, fuck, man, I'm glad I didn't end it. You know, and, and that's a lesson that, that, that will stick with me forever. Because I got lucky because a lot of people haven't, they hadn't, they, they weren't, they didn't have the privilege of having a father or who knew how to deal, how to kind of, on a psychological level, deal with a situation like that. Most people I don't think would. Or no. in some terms, a lot of people wouldn't even have a father or, or any parents, or maybe the gig wouldn't come, or maybe it came a month too late or a day too late or a half hour too late. So, so there's a lot of luck involved here, but nevertheless, it happened. And I acknowledge it. Um, and I actually took the Greyhound up to his, I didn't fly up there. You know, I took the Greyhound and uh, he loved me. So we, uh, I think what happened was then I, I I drove back down her Greyhound and then waited three weeks and he, and, and he sent me his music and I learned it at home. And then I actually think he flew me up three weeks later and we did that two months tour, which he does every summer, like most musicians, right? Uh, you know, which is, you know, two months in a van and a trailer uh, doing touring the Chitlin circuit, the same circuit people have been touring forever with rhythm and blues music, right? But yeah, I, I, so I flew up there and, and we had two rehearsals. Uh, we rehearsed for two days, five hours a day, and, and then off we went. 
And that was it. Then the rest of the learning the gear was learning the gig by the gig. You know, you learned on the gig. It was that. And I, I stuck with Curtis for five, five and a half years. Which is when I first saw you. Yes. Okay, so from having that dream of joining the Curtis Salgado band to actually joining this Curtis Salgado band, what was the reality like for you? Oh, totally surreal. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I can imagine. I fucking did it. I told you. <laughs> you know, I was kind of like, I knew I could do it. You know, it, it was uh, not in a cocky way, because that's not how I am, but a little bit in a, you know, I mean, I was proud of myself. And, and I also felt lucky because I knew that there was a tremendous amount of luck. Uh, but at the end of the day, it was me that presented. That luck couldn't have happened. Like I said, if you want to get hit by lightning, you got to walk out in the field. You can't sit, sit at home and then wonder why lightning ain't hitting you, right? So, 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 so I did that. I recognized that. I give myself credit for that. But, you know, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, there was some luck there. But it was just surreal. It was it was fucking crazy, man. You know, and it was ups and downs, and and some of it was fucking hell. It was a lot of work for not a lot of pay, and we didn't always get along, and and you know, but but I don't. That's not a second that that I regret. I I learned so much from Curtis, and he's one of my dearest friends. I love him dearly. Uh, it, it was amazing. I couldn't fucking believe it. The only reason I quit was because I didn't have any money. I was just, you know, you get older and I was just tired of struggling. I met my then girlfriend and, and we got married and all that, you know, Curtis played at my wedding, you know, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, one of the greatest days of my life. But I just, I didn't want to do it. And I didn't want to do it to my wife. You know, I mean, I, I did pay my share of the bills. I, I did pay my share of, 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 of rent and bills. But let's face it, for the 10 years, I, I mean, oh, seven, eight years there before I got a job in 2008, I'd never bought, I never took my wife out. I've never bought her anything, never took her out for dinner, no Christmas present, no birthday present, no nothing. And her family was so grace, gracious, you know, working class family. Nobody, they were, they were fans of that music. They used to go see Curtis at the Waterford Blues Festival every year. So maybe that have helped, but, but still, I never got the talk, you know? Right. I never, my father-in-law never took me outside. Who's and he's a real working-class guy. You know, worked at the same factory for forty years. He never took me outside and said, "Hey, listen, son, we love you, but you know, when are you, when are you going to get a job? Or what about my daughter?" And and again, uh, Brenda, my wife, has through eighteen years, she has never, ever, ever brought up that I didn't, you know, why she couldn't get stuff because she understood music. She was dancing herself in school, being a dancer. She played in jazz bands. You reach better music than I do, funny enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, so so you go through this. You decide that you're going to leave the band. And you basically, I th believe you decide to leave music, right? Yeah, uh, well, let me let me think. Because, shoot, man, I, f I think, yeah, I think, I think I did decide to leave music. I, I'm not sure. Which is yeah, it's huge. I'm not sure. Yeah, I understood the gravity of what that meant at the time. Because I was still kind of playing a little bit with Curtis, you know, he had a jam band and, you know, off and on, I would play with the, with a couple of other people in town. Yeah. So I still did like 20 shows a year, you know, for a little bit. In and I loved that. But yeah, I wasn't. No. Yeah. I was the local guy. I was day job with weekend gigs or whatever. I was I. Yeah, I was done. My my. 
I was no longer a professional musician for a living. I wasn't touring. Yeah, I mean, that was it. And then something happens. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, the recession hit. You know, the, the recession hit. And I remember coming home from Denmark in late 2008. No, this is January 2008. No, 2009. And I think Bush had just told every American on TV, hey, sorry, I fucked up. We have no money. We broke. And I came home to Guitar Center where, at first, by the way, when I first quit with Curtis, I started working at a car auction selling cars. Right. And I would get up at five in the morning to drive to Seattle, Mannheim Auto Auction to work there. It was shit jobs, but it paid cash. And it was three days a week. But eventually I had to get a real, uh, quote unquote, real job at Guitar Center. I didn't really make any more money. I'd make like maybe $100 more a month. But now I had to work full time every day, but in order to get health insurance. Right. So that's how I started working with Guitar Center. I still did some charity benefit auctions, you know, uh, on the side, which eventually allowed me to save up money to move to Austin. But, uh, but anyway, I, Guitar Center was my real job. And to be honest with you, the first year I was in heaven, man. We had community. Immediately, I was at top of sales. Uh, because I actually know music. A lot of people at Guitar Center, they, want, they didn't really have my expertise, if you know, and my experience. Mm -hmm. Some did, but not most. But it, but I loved the people there. There was a really good vibe. Everybody were great. And we just, I, I, I was so happy to be off the road. I can't tell you enough. I just dreaded the long drives, the bad food. The, I just loved, and being able to make money, man, and it wasn't even a lot. I made 21000 that first year, but for me, it was, I mean, we could afford, like, spending seven bucks on a bottle of wine, like, every weekend. It was for us. I, I felt like I was a millionaire. It was wonderful. It was one of the best years of my life. It was really, really good phase. But then I come home to the recession, and I see half of everybody was fired at Guitar Center, and the other half were put on part-time and no health care. And within the next three months, half of the half that were left got fired too. And uh, it was hell, man. I fucking hated it. And it just, the new nightmare has begun. And then I kind of wanted to get back into music. And that's when I can't remember through Facebook back in the day. I think, I think it was Mike Shermer who had heard that Jennifer Magnus was looking for a guitar player. And he recommended me. And he knew me through Curtis. And uh, I kind of got back into music. And at the time, she was torn a little bit more. And I did the rhythm and blues cruise with her. And we were, we were gonna, I was gonna move back to LA. That was, I kind of, prom I promised Janovan that if she hired me, I'd move to LA. Uh, it ended up not panning out because after that three week, we did the blues cruise, and then we did three weeks of touring. We just didn't gel, man. I mean, right. we, we, me and Janovan really did not get along at all i'm not talking this was we just did not get along i, I love the band i like the music most of it i like what she was trying to do she's really an up and come winning a lot of the blues awards mm -hmm. and i have a lot of respect for her in many ways and still do today but i, I couldn't do the gig so i broke a promise and i realized that but at the end of the day you can't be miserable i mean and i couldn't do that to my wife either right so I called Geneva up and it was not a great conversation. So that ended and now I was kind of stuck back at Guitar Center. The, luckily, they took me back and stuff. And uh, and then, and now we kind of get into the Steve Miller thing here. Uh, I had a buddy of mine, a, a drummer, great drummer. His name is Brian Ferguson. 
who I got to know in the Dallas music scene. I mean, if you're talking about Texas Shuffle and some of that stuff, he's about, I'm not sure it'd get much better. He's great. Uh, and uh, he was playing in a band called Aaron Watson, Texas country band, making good money. So, so being into country, and I, I love country music, and, and I can play it somewhat. I'm more of a Dwight Yoakam kind of guy, right? But I, I can definitely play that music. Um, I remember talking to my wife, and my wife just looks at me and she said, Jacob, you want to give music another shot, don't you? And I couldn't fucking believe what I just heard. Uh, <laughs> because what wife does that? I don't know anybody's wife. I'm sure there's some, but you know what? I'm in the 1% of wives, I think, here, when it comes to <laughs> understandment for what I do. Right. Uh, I was floored. And immediately I was kind of back, but no, that's not what I'm saying. I don't want you, you know, and she was studying neuroscience at the time, and I just didn't want in any way. I just did not want to do something that hurt her career or hurt her plans. Right. Because I knew at the time music was suicide. I had gotten older. I had achieved the goal. I came here. I played with Salgado. But I also knew how it was to be broke. And I went, you know, I mean, I'd kind of been up and down. And I gained some wisdom and some maturity. And uh, I just, I couldn't do that to my wife. I just didn't know. I decided that I would, I, 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 my career, of course, matters. But not at the benefit of my wife. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So, so she kind of, she, she was like, no, no, seriously. She saw the misery I was in and, 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 uh, I think in an equal way was, she was not happy about that. And she understood that, that kind of gift I have. And the way I, it, it's a very explosive and I have a lot of aggression. There's, there's a lot of stuff inside. And so I play. That's one of the reasons why I play like I play. Uh, it, it's, uh, the downside of that is it's hard to just, I kind of need it. I need that outlet. Mm -hmm. All musicians do. But depending on your personality, your personality shows the kind of player you are. So some musicians deal better with it than others. It's hard for me because inside I'm like a rebellion, you know. I mean, I'm I'm more related to like punk music and stuff and, and re direct rebellion, <laughs> rock and roll back in the day when it was dangerous. That that's I know I don't look it, but that's my heart. That's how I am as a person. I always said it's a good thing I'm not a big guy because I'll probably be in jail for beating somebody up. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, and that's of course wrong. Everything about that is wrong. Mm -hmm. but, but but that's that that it's like I often say there's like a nuclear reactor going off inside. And it's about managing that. Uh, but once it's channeled, I can I can hang on on a guitar. I, I and and that that's something I've always known. Uh, and that's why it's so it's been so hard for me to let it go and give up because I know at the right scene, I can I I can potentially I I can do some stuff. And my wife saw that and 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 uh, she she agreed, man. And 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 we came up with a plan to move to Austin. Uh, and at first, you know. We didn't really know. So she would ask her work about University of Texas. Do you guys know anybody? Blah, blah. And I would ask guitar center, blah, blah, blah. And there was no transfer. Nobody in the, my guitar center called guitar center in Austin. Nah, he didn't need anybody. Brenda asked the doctor she was working on. Nah, he didn't know anybody. You know, and so we, we said, fuck it. Let's just go for it. I had saved up six grand at the time and sold all my music. I, I even sold my guitar. Uh, because else we couldn't afford it. Uh, so I had no musical instruments at the time. 
and you know all the money I saved up working the auctions for six for three years or two or three years I'd saved right so uh, it was that desperate uh, and I said fuck it I'll just work at Starbucks I'll do whatever it was kind of the last it was the last go at the dream does that make sense yeah and uh, I remember like a week before we were supposed to move and this is now everything phone bill is cancelled we we we, we we canceled our lease and off our, off our, I mean, our rent, you know, for our, our little one bedroom and everything and planned how we were going to drive both our cars down and all this shit. On the same day, Brenda got a call from her professor, said that the professor he had contacted in Austin knew another professor who needed somebody and, you know, and he would love to have Brenda. Wow. And the bizarre thing is in Beaverton, which is a suburb of Portland, the man at guitars in the there. He just transferred down to guitars in Austin, gonna manage that. And he would love to have him. So it went from like having nothing again, right? <laughs> and just saying, fuck it, this is our last go. We're just gonna go balls out and do this and work do whatever work we can. To all of a sudden we both at work. So it was again life just I mean, that's luck, man. There ain't no, that's just luck. I don't, I mean, it just is. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no skill. There's, I don't need any kind of credit. It's just some people get, you know, it's just, I was lucky. And I admit that. Uh, well, I see that as luck. I don't know about you actually joining Curtis's band as luck. Because I think no. in a weird way, you earned it. You know what I mean? Yeah, you I, made I it see, happen. I can entertain that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can entertain that idea. I can entertain that. But, but yeah, so pretty much, you know, I transferred to Guitar Center. Brenda, she works neuroscience. We have a little one-bedroom, and, and we're doing all right. We drive down there, of course, in our cars. And and um, thank God for friends, right? Um, I had done some guitar pickup demos on YouTube back in the day where demos wasn't a thing. I was, I'm not kidding you. I was the only one on YouTube doing demos. Think about that. YouTube, 350 million Americans. I was the only guy. In England, nobody did it. Sir, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I've done some YouTube videos. I remember George Bush. He gave everybody 600 bucks. I don't know if you remember that. Go out and buy something. Stimulate the economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 600 bucks. So me and Brenda bought an iMac. You know, a computer. It was like the luxury. The It was like our luxury item, right? And uh, I would just use the mic there. It was the prim so primitive. And there was a guy, Henry, my dear friend Henry. I haven't spoken to him in a while, by the way. I got to call him. Uh, red plate amps, fantastic, dumbbellized kind of Fender amps, but a lot more than that. Very original in a way. I helped him design an amp, and I got to know him at the Blues Cruise. And Ron Ellis, I got to know him through a friend, and, and he sent me some pickups. And I did a demo of some Ron Ellis pickups, and, and he called me and said, man, your demos, man. He, in two weeks, he made $10,000 off my demos. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, so he told me, you're going to get pickups free for life. And he was very generous and always helped me out. And, and Henry, the same way I helped him with some designs, some ideas. And I did those demos and they became, I mean, uh, if there were other people than me doing demos, maybe it was 10, but it was like nobody. And it was super primitive. But anyway, now we're back in Texas and I'm working guitars. And so about seven months into it, uh, no, three months into it, I, I hear John Nemeth, he's a guitar player. And I go out with him. Everything was just wrong. All of a sudden, I find myself back in the blues scene. And I should have said no. But 
Nemi's worst. He's just, I've never, I mean, he's potentially the nicest guy I've met in my life. I, I, I pretty much regretted it. And, you know, we're standing on, playing on sand. That's, and the stage was like two inches and there's like four people and you're drunk on like drinks with umbrellas in them in Florida, right? <laughs> and I mean, it's like, I'm just standing there going, I, because Nemeth, he's so, and, and I'm not just, Nemeth did festivals and big advanced gigs. So, so I'm not saying that to, I'm not downing John Nemeth. Yeah, this no. is just, I'm actually giving him credit because John Nemeth works harder than anybody. He plays any gig. He don't care. He'll do it. Never seen anybody work harder than him. And I respect that. But I'm standing there and I just realized this ain't it, man. This is the exact thing that didn't work for me before, right? right. So old problems, you're not going to solve with the old, you keep doing the same. So I kind of just got cold feet, man. And uh, Nemeth, no problem, he said. He fucking takes me out and buys me this unbelievable dinner and personally drives me to the airport and gives me a big hug and, and says, all things are good and good luck, man. And it, thanks for coming out and playing with us for a few. I, get, I did like five, four or five shows. Wow. Uh, you know, it, I, yeah, I was shocked of his generosity, man. It was, that was unbelievable. And I felt really bad about it. But anyway, I came home and, uh, and, and the way I did that gig yeah, I think the other guitar player, I borrowed, I borrowed a guitar from somebody because I didn't have a guitar. Because remember, I had to sell it yeah, to a yeah. fort moving to Austin. So I had no musical equipment. So I was able to borrow something for that little stint because it was already in Florida. I just kind of flew in. But I come home, work for two weeks, Brian Ferguson, the drummer I told you about before. He knows some friends that are doing an audition with a kid called Hudson Moore. It was kind of a country. At that time, it was kind of like if you mix Keith Urban with Jason Mraz with uh, what's his name? John Mayer. Right. Uh, so he's auditioning, and they've been auditioning ten guitar players in Austin, and they, there were two people that maybe, but they weren't quite sold. So they were they were hanging out at a bar talking about it, and uh, Nate Coon was an incredible drummer, plays kind of new country, Texas country, and he, I mean, he's world class. He plays in pretty much every CD that's made in Texas these days in that scene. He called Brian. And Brian said, why don't you try my buddy Jacob? So I kind of got in on the sideline, you know, and I showed up and remember I looked ridiculous. I was wearing one of those blues shirts, you know, that are black, the Sopranos with the white, <laughs> the silk shirt. I mean, I looked like, because I wasn't hip. All the other, I mean, I remember. And I had, oh yeah. So for that audition, my buddy Henry sent me an amp for free, a little, a little 112 portable amp. And my buddy Ron Ellis, he just UPSed me uh, a $3,000 Fender Telecaster custom shop. When, as soon as you heard about that audition. And, and actually, oh, shoot, man. I remember my wife telling me. Yes, that's what it was. They did that for the Nemeth thing. And then I come home from that, down in the dirt, feeling shitty about what I've done. Super grateful. I got to go back to Guitar Center. They took me back. Uh, but feeling defeated. That's when I get that call about Hudson Moore. Hmm. So I, I have like a one. I, I, my wife just told me that I forgot all about it. She, she had to refresh my memory. Like I remember two weeks ago, I learned the songs that night. Just coming in from Florida. I learned the songs that very night. And uh, it's like five tunes, so it's not a whole lot. But nevertheless, I didn't have time to prepare. Luckily, I had the gear because people send it to me for free, no charge. Of course, I got to send it back when I no longer use it. But they just said, "Here," so they, so I have people that are willing to help me. So I have a telly, I have this little amp, I happen to have it. 
because I got it for the Namath gig. I come home, the Hudson Moore gig falls out. So I'm coming in there. I look silly because I'm not hip. I don't wear rings and my hair isn't long. I'm not wearing <laughs> leather pants, whatever. And I remember rolling my shit in at Soundcheck, which is the big rehearsal studio. And and there's like, I, this guy, I don't know who he is. He's got like spiky hair and he's eyeshadow and he's got a nose ring and some tattoos and he's a little bit ripped. And this huge Marshall stack, you know, and I'm just going, wow, man, because these guys just look like rock stars, right? And it was really, in really intimidating. And I roll my shit into that hall and into the room and, and I do the audition. And it just gels. I just know because I, I can hear, right? And, uh, but of course, I didn't know he would pick me. But they invited me for another audition. And uh, I nailed it. And I ended up being in that band. And I played with him. Now I'm going to go quick. And I played with him for six months, seven months. It allowed my wife and I to kind of elevate our lifestyle a little bit and get paid some credit off. We still couldn't afford moving out of that little apartment, unfortunately. But but then I'm there. I'm with him for for, for I played with him for seven months. But then we we now we have we have passed because we wanted a contract, and you couldn't cancel the contract early. That you had to pay like ten thousand dollars to get out of your contract. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so, but but we were paying twenty five hundred dollars a month, which was huge money. Most jobs don't pay twenty five hundred dollars a month. I mean, this was a ridiculous deal, and the act was so new, we didn't even have gigs yet. We practiced like two days a week. I mean, it was the dream gig. It was perfect. The guys were great. Music was good. Hudson is the sweetest kid in the world. He's a good musician. He's a great guy. I mean, it was really great. I would have stuck around that band had it not been for Steve. So tell me about how that happened. Well, this is, I, I, and I'm speeding it up quick because I know time, you know, but uh, my story, like I said, is so crazy <laughs> that it takes longer. So, so you know, um, so uh, pretty much we are now in January, February, March, I think. Um, Yeah, March. And Steve Miliband, you're coming down here to film Austin City Limits. And uh, now... Uh, real quick, the Steve connection is this. Steve and Curtis Elgato are friends. Steve got to know Curtis because Steve is a huge blues fan. In the mid-90s, Curtis was playing up in Ketchum, Idaho at a blues club. And Steve lived up there at the time, and he came down to check him out. And he ended up sitting in, and they became friends. Uh, 2005, Steve checks him out as an opener act. Uh, against the advice of current management because Curtis is not going to bring enough tickets, enough people in the seats. And that's, of course, right. When you're a Chitlin Circuit guy and Steve is playing for a minimum of 6,000, but mostly ten to 15,000 people, even some festivals that are 20 or 25. Right. But Steve said, I don't give a shit. I like Curtis. So you got to give it to Steve. Uh, coming from the other, sitting on the other side, being that band hired, uh, it's a big deal. So they knew each other from then. Uh, so no, this was 2003. This was in the late 90s, 98 or 99. Now I was with Curtis in, in 2005. So the opportunity came up again for to do a small, small two-week tour with Steve Miliband in California, going down to Vegas, finishing up Mandalay Bay. And uh, that was in 2005. I was in the band. I quit 2006, mid-2006 or something like that, I think. 
So that's so Steve liked my guitar playing so much he used to sit in the lawn chair at every and watch every Curtis Elgato show right over by my amp. <laughs> and he liked me because I played clean. Do you remember I talked to you how I'm getting much dirtier now yeah, playing yeah. Gibsons and Marshalls? Back then I was so I mean it was a much more sophisticated, very clean, like a hundred percent clean because I was so into Robert Cray. And I think that's how I developed my phrasing. Because when your guitar is totally clean, you got to know how to play. Because uh, so, nothing to cover it up. So Steve liked my playing, which was great. And he invited me to sit in the Mandalay Bay. I never forgot it. It was totally surreal. I, I mean, it was unbelievable. And um, then later, when, when, we, when, when Kurt, Curtis unfortunately had cancer, as, as you know, yeah. and he did a big benefit, in, I think it was 2006. So this is my last show with Curtis. We're doing the benefit. Steve Miller Band, Robert Cray, Charles Mahal, Phantom Blues Band. I mean, it was like, for me, it was like, you're winning the lottery. I couldn't believe it, right? Biggest night of my life. And uh, Steve come up. We did Fly Like an Eagle together. Uh, I didn't really get to talk to him at that time. And uh, after that, there's a huge jam session. And, you know, Robert Cray being my guitar idol, you know? I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't be in the jam session. I, I, I had an opportunity to play with Robert Cray. But I couldn't. I had to leave because I had to get up in the morning at five o'clock to drive to Seattle to sell cars. Hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, I can't tell you the amount of discipline that took. I'm sure. Uh, uh, and also, it was my last rodeo, man. That was my music is done, right? So it was uh, very, it was a very bittersweet. I had my my best night and my worst night within a time frame of six hours. Mm -hmm. But before I left, Steve, he told me, you want? But of course, he got it, right? Uh, I, well, you know, I got to check your number down. So he wrote my number down on a, on a paper napkin. I'm not going to let you become an accountant. So I kind of left with that. That was what allowed me to get through those jobs and, and, and that first year because I kind of thought he had my back. That I know it was naive, but I kind of thought maybe he would be looking out for me. You know, uh, and I know that's never what he meant. But from my point of view, from where I'm sitting, Steve is kind of like a legend, right? For sure. So I kind of, so to me, being a fan, I took it as something he, it wasn't. But maybe also because I needed that at the time to get through all the other bullshit. Because uh, it was a tough job. That car stuff was just, I mean, it was tough in many ways. But now we're in Austin, and now we're back to the Hudson gig. Uh, so Steve, of course, he never called me, and which is a different story too. Which also really, I mean, hurt me a lot because I th I felt really forgotten. But but you know, Steve gets five thousand emails a day. You know, it, it was it's not it wasn't personal at all. It's just he's busy. I mean, it's not. Yeah. You know. But anyway, so I got to know Steve that way, and I kind of got to know Kenny and the band, and so after Norton's death, there had been some changes. Uh, Steve felt he couldn't replace Norton, and you can't because he's such an incredible player. Nobody plays like Norton. Nobody sings like him, so that was impossible. So instead, he did a couple of blues albums. He hired the guy, Sonny Charles, mm -hmm. old checkmate singer, great singer, and great entertainer. And uh, at the same time, Billy Peterson, the old bass player, he fell from a tree. Real outdoorsman, had an accident and, and broke his angle and couldn't, he couldn't play. And at the time, Steve... So, so Kenny kind of moved over to bass because when, when Kenny started up with, with Steve, he was a bass player on Abracadabra. He's a bass player. When he got hired to do the tour in Europe, he showed up with a bass. 
He's, yeah, Steve already have a bass player. He goes, what are you doing? There's already a bass player. No, you're playing guitar. So, you know, Kenny's a mul he's a multi-talent, man. He can, I mean, he just is. So so he's kind of known for, but, but anyway, so he wrote, he went back on bass and kind of would go back and forth between. And Kenny, because when he was really making a living as a bass player primarily, it was the 70s. So Kenny kind of played more, I think, like from what Steve was used to. You know, where Billy Peterson is more of a jazz guy, so he maybe bring a different feel. So I think Steve just got kind of to liking the feel of that new vibe, and he decided to let Billy go. And apparently he's been thinking about adding some new element, you know, and not have Kenny run back and forth from guitar to bass. It's not practical. It worked for some things, and for some things it didn't. Right. So um, Kenny Lee calls me the day before. Hey, man, yeah, we're going to be playing tomorrow. Do you want to come down? I didn't want to come down. I just didn't. Yeah. You know, and I think partly also was because what had happened with me and Steve. Steve said, hey, man, I, I'm not going to let you become an accountant. Like, I kind of felt, I thought Steve had my back, and then he didn't. And he never just, I, he never, that was me. I took it totally wrong. That was my fault. But that doesn't change the fact that when you are not doing well and you're not happy with how your life is going, you're looking for a place to kind of, you know, I wouldn't say put the blame because that's not what I did. But it, it bothered me. It, it hurt my feelings. And it was something that really, you know, it was hard for me. I would rather that he hadn't said shit, you yeah, know. For sure. Uh, but so I didn't really want to. I was kind of poo-pooing it. My wife was like, listen, I just got a feeling you got to go. And I said, I don't want to fucking go. Okay, I got the, you know, I got the Hudson gig. I'm doing great. I think you need to go. <laughs> you kind of put a foot down. I'm like, ah. okay, all right. So I went down there and uh, we're standing outside of the green room because this was not the actual filming. Before they do the filming on these Austin City Limits, they do a night for all the sponsors. And they kind of do a practice run. Right. And that was what I was invited down to. Kenny just invited me down there because he, actually, he just wanted to go and have some tacos, and he just needed a ride, right? I mean, we know each other, but we're not like, we weren't like friends. So he just wanted somebody who could drive him around, just get some food and show him the city and shoot the shit. It wasn't, you know, he wanted like friends, friends. We knew each other, you know, and, 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 and you know, that was, that was all that was. So I'm in the green room, and then just before showtime, uh, everybody does what they call yayas, uh, and that is uh, an old tape where it's a vocal warm-up tape. And uh, it's 30 minutes where everybody kind of bonds together and kind of warm up their voices. So, uh, you know, Brett, the tour manager, comes down there and says, all right, everybody out, all the guys out. We're, we're doing our yayas, you know, vocal warm-up. And I kind of go outside. My, my, my wife is like, let, let, let's just stand out here. Let's just wait and see if, if Steve recognizes you. So I decided to just stand outside the door, like to the side, like, you know, three feet to the to the side. Right. And Steve comes walking, there's people around him, and he's, you know, had that firm look, and he's ready to go. And he sees me, and he's like, what? And his eyes lit up, he's like, Jacob. And he stops, and he's like, what are you doing here? I mean, I knew you were moved, but I thought you moved to Seattle. I'm like, no. And he's like, oh, well. And then he just says right away, well, think about it. Listen to this. So you know what happened, blah, 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 Norton, Kenny, blah, 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 blah. And then he goes a quick spill. It takes like 30 seconds. He's a, and, and then he just ends up, and I'm kind of not really comprehending, it, comprehending everything. <laughs> right. And he just goes, and that's why I thought you'd be perfect for the band. 
And I'm just going, I, I, I mean, I, I've had a glass of wine. I'm slightly buzzed. I hadn't eaten at all that day. And I'm dehydrated. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. And, and I'm telling you, not a part of me wanted to join that band. I just wanted to say no because I was scared shitless. <laughs> but how I am, I said, yes, right. I just said automatically, yeah, I, I'd love that. I mean, if, if you feel I would work, I would love that. You know, scared shitless. But I just said yes right away. So, and he said, oh, great. Come in right now. Uh, hey, do you sing? Well, yeah, I do. Do you sing high? Yeah. Okay, great. So then he just, and then he auditioned me right there on the spot with like a glass of wine in, in my hand. And I had to sing with the whole band. I mean, it was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. And, you know, and, and that's why sometimes the whole preparation thing, you know, oh, you got to practice or you got to do this, you got to that. And everybody have their methods. That's not how rock and roll works. Sometimes it's at your worst right now. And if you can't perform, then you, you may have a problem. Right. And, and then the next day. He was doing a music video, and he said, come on out to the music video. And, and, and I did. I drove in his bus out there. and We did another vocal warm-up practice. And uh, then he flew me up to his house in Ketchum three weeks later. And and he bought a laptop for me. Hey, do you have a laptop? No. You don't have a laptop? I said, you don't really, can't really afford that. And then he had a guy, who, like an assistant, who would do a bunch of stuff for him, right? And he said, I want you right now. Go down and buy it. Uh, a MacBook Pro and get me the biggest one fully loaded with Apple Care. So he bought me like the <laughs> biggest model, like with the, you know, everything maxed out, the RAM maxed out, the, everything. And then he loaded all his music up. We're talking like 200 songs, every album he's ever done, plus stuff I've never heard before, all this shit. And then he said, uh, and then he, uh, and then he, um, I was there for three days. We played guitar 15 hours a day. And then we would go down and eat dinner at like 10 at night. And we would sit and talk until two or three in the morning and get up the next day, do it again, you know? And then he sent me home with that, with that laptop. And then he just, uh, you know, oh, and then what happened, of course, I, he wanted me to start to go out with him. And he said, in April, I'm doing a spring tour. Can you do that? And I said, no, because I was still on the contract. And I remember the manager told me, if you're going to say no, you're taking a chance. Because people don't really say no to Steve. Right. He's not really a no guy. He's like a yes guy. But but because I am like I am and I am loyal and I'm my word is my word. And, and, and I never lie. I've been that way my whole life. I tell the truth. Uh, I said I can't do it. And I also wouldn't do that to Hudson. Because, I mean, one thing is my career, that's great. But Hudson is trying to realize his dreams. I can't do my dreams at the expense of his dreams. That's not right. And the band, I didn't feel it was right to do that for the guys who depend on me. You know, so so I said, I can't do that tour. Uh, and Steve had already at the time offered to just pay it. You know, do you remember I told you it was like $10,000? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, oh, oh, we'll, oh, we'll just pay it. He didn't care, he'll just pay it. You know, but I, I, I said no. So the manager called Steve and, and talked to him about it. And my manager called me back a few hours later and said, well, I think you got really lucky. In this case, it worked in your favor. And I think Steve realized that if you're that loyal, you're going to be that loyal to him. And he appreciated it. Wow. So I was, yes, yeah, so I was allowed, we were allowed to do that. Then, then he, he did fly me out on a weekend 
uh, where, where I just, I was lucky Hudson wasn't gigging that particular day. Uh, I was, the deal was you fly out, you hang with the band for three days. You see two shows, just so you get an idea about how we do things. You're not playing, you're just going to come out and hang out just to see the show and what, how we do things. And then I remember showing up there and, 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 you know, you're doing sound check and Steve shows up. Oh, Jacob. Hey, so are you playing? <laughs> I mean, I'm like, fuck man, because I was not supposed to do the summer tour. That was like three months, three and a half months out. Luckily, the minute I got home from Kitchen, Idaho with that laptop, I treated learning his material as a day job. I got up at eight, had breakfast, made coffee. And I did seven hours a day, six, seven hours a day with a lunch break. And I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And I learned everything. So I had spent probably 12 days doing that. So I, I of course, I was scared shitless. So, so I told him, listen, I didn't think I was going to play. Can I sit tonight out and just see the first show? But I'll, I'll happily play tomorrow. And he said, no problem. And I did. And, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I must have probably looked like you know, nervous as hell, you know, I'm sure I, I looked a little bit out of place on stage, but uh, I, I, I did a good job, you know, and I knew all the songs and I didn't make any mistakes and I pulled it off. And uh, then we went out three months later and did three months and I learned most of that shit on the road. You know, uh, there was no rehearsal before. So when you play with somebody like Steve Miller, who is a legend, who's yep. written some amazing songs, what... What is it that, like, when you sit there on stage or stand there on stage, what is it about him that most of us wouldn't realize? Well, I think the first thing is that not a lot of people have a career. Not a lot of people have that many hits. No. When you say Steve Miller, most people... There are the people that say they don't know him, but then they hear like the Joker or Fly Like an Eagle, and then they know him. But that may be it, right? And then there are people that know him and know two or three or four songs. But then you go to the show and you realize you know 10 or 15. Yeah. There's not a lot of acts who have a catalog like that. And he did it all in 10 years. I mean, you know, he'd already had like four albums out in the 60s or five or something, you know. So he already did the 60s. And then there's some stuff from the 80s. Uh, you know, uh, he kind of kind of kicked back from music and he actually bought a farm in Oregon. And yeah. Steve likes to do other stuff uh, than just play. But he's kind of, when he was big, right, he's kind of, the Steve Miller time, I think, is from 72 to about 81. Uh, and he's made more hits than I think anybody, you know. Uh, so, 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 so that's one, I, one thing I would think is, is special about Steve, that I think a lot of people go to our shows because they know it's going to be a good time. And maybe a friend said, oh, come out and hear this, and they know a song or two, and they end up on their feet dancing all night, uh, knowing pretty much all the songs. Uh, and I see Steve surprise people like that countless times. I, I've heard a story, Joseph Wooten told me this story, because this was before my time. There was a time where the PA go, uh, goes down. All the electricity cuts out at a festival. And Steve and Norton Buffalo, he managed to sit down with two megaphones and an acoustic guitar and Norton on harp and vocals and entertain a whole audience for 30 minutes until the power gets back on. Wow. And that's the old school way. And, and that's, I think, 
Steve is the last frontier of learning the old way. I think people that are joining bands now, people that are younger than me, are not going to have the ability to harvest that wisdom. There will be other stuff. Mm -hmm. There will be new stuff. But I think Steve is the last frontier. I mean, who else are you going to find who did the 60s and the 70s, right? Who else are you going to find who were there when rock and roll was actually new? You know? Yeah. It's a different way of playing. As a player, what has the last 10 years done for you? Uh, I mean, I want to say good and bad, but it's not really bad. Kenny Lee told me when he became full-time bass player and I joined our guitar, he said, listen, get yourself a band because you're going to lose your chops. And I, every band I've been in, I've always been the youngest and I've always played with people better than me. And when I say better, I mean from a technical point of view. I have great technique from what I do, but I'm not a jazz guy. I'm not a classical guy. I, I don't read music that well and it takes me a little longer. I got a good ear and a good feel, but um, I've always played with people better than me and older than me. And I've always gotten, I've always kind of felt like, man, I really got to, I really got to play here because the other, you know, cause I'm playing with, with people that could potentially kick my ass. So I've always enjoyed that. And that was still like that with Steve, probably 30 more times. I mean, Kennedy Lewis, Joseph Wooden and Gordy Knudsen. I mean, I mean, the musicianship is it's 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 unbelievable how great I mean they're really great players. Mm -hmm. uh, so in in their own ways, uh, but with Steve I'm not. It's not about me. It's about Steve. I'm not on stage to do my thing. It is the Steve Miller band, right? But you know, uh, I'm not sure anybody would care if, if if there'd be a new guitar player. If, if Steve goes out and plays next year, if anybody plays, but if it wasn't me on guitar, I don't think anybody would care. People are there to see Steve. You know, uh, the show would be different, but at the end of the day, you know, it's Steve Miller. It's not about Jacob Peterson. But it's like, an, like your journey is like insane. <laughs> like it's, I don't know if you look at it that way, but from, I the, do. you know, from the depths of depression in California, to you know or whatever just the fact that the the different opportunities that you've had which is mm -hmm. insane to have a dream to play with curtis salgado and achieve that dream is amazing and then to kind of give up music and then now you've been with the steve miller band for the last 10 years it's like quite a story yeah i mean to be honest with you i i do see it uh, i mean it's a book Every time I haven't done a lot of interviews, I, I I don't think a whole lot of people care about, you know, me. I'm, there's plenty of guitar players on Instagram and doing YouTube videos that are, you know, showing themselves and all the amazing things you can do, and that's fine. That haven't really been me because m my goal have been to make the Steve Miller band sound as good as possible, to right. make everybody else sound good. So what I've learned with Steve Miller is. If you come out and see Steve Miller Band, you're not going to see Jacob Peterson in in a way of all the stuff I can do. Nobody has a clue what I can do. And it's been 10 years. No, Most people don't know I can actually even play. I mean, like solos and lead and, and rip like Led Zeppelin or ACDC with the best of them or, or, or play R&B. There's so many things I can do. People have no clue. And right. that's fine. But what I've learned with Steve, from Steve, but 
if not more from, from Joseph Wooten, but from everybody, all the band members, is how important it is to play one, as one unit. Like some a guy asked me once, doesn't it get boring to play the same songs or play the Joker? And it was funny, I thought about it. I don't really think about the songs. Because when I play a song on stage, I just look at the audience. I'm not thinking about the song in a way. I'm not thinking about, oh, this chord is boring or it's the same part. Because for me, it's about the energy. The part is just a vessel to get to feel in a certain way. And for me, it's about, if I'm up there thinking about something is boring, I'm going to affect the band and I'm going to let everybody else down on stage. I can't do that. I have to, every, and be singing now too, I can never put my guard down. I have to, con from that 90 minute to two hours we're in states, I can't let my guard down for a second because then everybody else, you know, it's kind of like you carry, if everybody's carrying heavyweight, if one guy, you know, lets loose a little bit, everybody else got to carry more weight and you feel it instant. And that's what it is. So that's what Steve Miller have taught me about entertainment, about how it is to be a professional how it is to go out there night after night. And it's not about me. It's not about, I played with food poisoning. I've been so sick that I didn't sleep. I puked my guts out. I lost seven pounds overnight, got food poisoning. You know, in the morning I, I, I take an Uber down to fucking emergency room and, and I get an IV in my arm and I dehydrate, I rehydrate. And then I go out and play the gig. Everybody else would have canceled. You know, it, 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 I played with strip throat three times. I mean, it, it's, you know, this is show business. And you just show up and you do your best every single night. It's not always possible because we're human, but at least you try and, and go there every single night. And if you don't do it, you're disrespecting the audience. And if you're disrespecting the audience, you're really a piece of shit. You have no business being on stage on this level, making music. That's I, how I feel. I, I wonder, like, also the other thing is that there's a certain, there's a weight of those songs that he has, mm -hmm. which is more than just a song it's you know it's soundtrack to people's lives it's memories yep. it's 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 something bigger than just a oh few man chords, it's way right? and so when you yeah but that, that dude right that's what i said right about the feeling i think yeah. that's something like is that what you're trying to say that there's a feel there's something above it's just a g a d b chord or whatever yeah the like, feel how does it make you feel when you hear that what what does it revolve and you're right it's people's dreams it's their high school years you know how many americans were the best lives, were the best time of their life with high school. For sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I mean, you know, when they were young and their first child, those first couple of years, you're trying to make it, you know, uh, I mean, and all this stuff, Steve Miller Band, it's, it's American history. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just the songs. And, and it means so much for people. And me, we have a lot of working people. And a lot of times, you know, I always think about that. You see somebody, especially lately, where the economy hasn't been great for a lot of working people, work their ass off, you know. Uh, $100 don't buy you what it used to. And uh, you go out and you see so many working class people uh, spending 150 bucks taking the wife out, you know, or their kids out to see a show. I think that's that's quite amazing. And I, I think they're doing that because they want to share that history with 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 the family and they want to kind of pass it down because it, it's it's not just the songs it's it's american history and it's um 
in a way nostalgic you know uh, in 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 a way some other music isn't in the same way i mean steve miller band reached america it reached everybody it wasn't just a group of certain people it's uh, it's quite amazing what he what he achieved mm-hmm. and you're part of that yeah you're and right it's, it's you're right you know and, and okay so i have to wrap this up but when you when you're on stage at that level because we're talking about a level that's not achieved by most musicians Mm-hmm. What surprises you the most? I mean, it's quite different from playing at Kingston Mines, and yeah, you know sure what I mean. Is. So, but when you go out there, at, and I know that when he goes on tour, it's a machine. There's there's what a t- road crew of twenty one or something. There's tractor trailers. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a big machine that rolls into town. What surprises yeah. you about that performing in that at that level? Well, what surprises me is that I get to do it again. Every time I'm up there, and I played with Steve for 10 years, every single time, every single show, I go, shoot, how did this happen? Yeah. Every single time. Not one show have I done, have I taken for granted. Not one show where I haven't been up there, where it felt. Because there's shows, I've had shows where I just, this is the last place I want to be. Always something that happens or you're upset or maybe you argued with somebody and you know, because we're people and we, we're very close, we do travel so close. Sometimes there's a little bit of you know, not everybody gets along all the time and, and you know, you sometimes it's hard being away from your family and you know, it just is sometimes you don't get enough sleep or whatever. And so so you know, you live with that, but as soon as you go out and you hit that first tune and you see the audience I mean, like I'm telling you, hitting that riff to Jedi Liner. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I can't explain it. It's, it, it's that to be up there, and I mean that riff, what that does to people, it, it's hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Especially because a lot, of, you know, when economy's bad or whatever, and people are struggling, and and for a minute. All that shit flies out the window, and and it's just these people right here, and it can become very intimate. Even if you're ten thousand people, it can become very intimate uh, and very unique, uh, and it really feels like you're presenting that song, especially for them. Even though you're doing it, and you're doing a tour, and you're hitting sixty cities. Uh, every show really feels like you're doing it for that special group. It's never quite the same. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's a thing I'm really glad I still feel because if I didn't feel that way, maybe I should not play uh, at all. So it's about something different. It's not about me up there playing lead guitar. It's not about me up there flaunting my own ego. You know, so yeah, it's special. It certainly is. And so is this. Thank you so much for doing this. And, and you know, you've always been great. We've been, I've known you for a while. You've always been very open and uh, sharing your feelings and your thoughts. And I always enjoy talking to you. And I think yours is one of the greatest musical stories that I know. So I really appreciate you talking about it. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you so much. And That's um, my pleasure. Hopefully we'll bump into each other soon. I hope so. You know, hopefully this goes away somehow some way and uh, and we'll be playing next year yeah i know steve steve would love to play again i know that uh who knows how it's going to happen when it's going to happen uh nevertheless who knows when we're going to be in canada but next time we are if you and i get a chance to sit down and have a beer it, it it will be 
even more exceptional and special than it ever has been before. I agree. Thank you so much for doing yeah. this. You got it. All right, take care.